Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of February 22nd, 2022. A lot of books this week. I don't know how many, 16 maybe? 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16. Yeah, 16 books. So hopefully it won't be too long. I'll, try to, I'll keep my talking to a minimum. <laughs> hopefully we won't do one of those three-hour episodes. But I did want to mention a couple of a couple of things before we before we dive in. I mean, o- overall, pretty big week, pretty, pretty good week. Um, kind of a good news, bad news thing. So in May, we get the final issue of Teen Titans Academy. Haven't been a big fan of the series. Feel like it hasn't ever really like, gelled and got its footing and felt like it's got good momentum. So maybe it is time for that one to, to go away. But on the flip side, Suicide Squad, which has been one of our favorite series from Robbie Thompson, that one's ending as well. So maybe the events of Earth, uh, you know, War for Earth 3, maybe it makes that makes sense there. Uh, of course, it wouldn't be a month of DC Comics if we didn't start a new Batman series. So The Fortress, uh, that's a new limited series that's starting. And um, the guy that wrote the Rogue One Star Wars story movie, he's the one, Gary Whitta is his name. He's handling that. Um, apparently, there's an alien invasion. Superman's nowhere to be found. Batman's got to handle it. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, there's also an Aquaman Black Label book from Rom V that got announced. Uh, the the yep. uh, Christian Ward on art it looks fantastic from the art that I've seen. It does. Also, Tom Tom King's next book, a Black Label book. <laughs> this one, oh my god, like a 12 issue maxi series. <laughs> and and uh, I think it sounds good. I'm interested it in it. Sounds it sounds amazing. Um, but Tom's basically taking the um, some of the most I don't know Z list characters, Y list characters um, that never had their own series, like Lady Cop and Dingbats of Danger Street and whatnot. And uh, yeah, just basically bef- after the DC implosion, DC had all these um, these inventory stories that they probably series they planned on launching that never did Creeper. Uh, there's a warlord one there, there's all kinds and nobody cares about these books like they're yeah. they're dollar books at, at best and now all of a sudden i see on ebay people are snapping them up they're going for like 10 bucks i just think it's hilarious but anyway yeah there should be a lot of obscure characters coming in the tom king black label jorge fornes is the artist so looking forward to that uh justice league dinosaur books called the jurassic league is coming as well uh, two more milestone books. Kind of been waiting for these for a while. Blood Syndicate and then Duo, who was zombie back in the old iteration of uh, Milestone. And uh, tying in with one of the books we're going to talk about in this episode, Fables is returning after a multi-year absence. The picking up where it left off with issue 151, which I love is that. Really, yeah, which is really, <laughs> which is really surprising to me that they're not starting over with number one. But I'm gl- I'm glad that they aren't. Um, so we'll see how that plays out, but, uh, yeah, overall a pretty solid week this week, Rocky, what did you think? Yeah, this, uh, well, this week was, it it was solid. There, there's a lot of, oh, there's some are just really good, but I I do think that there's some stinkers here. Uh, but, uh, in, in the, uh, when I do my own videos, uh, myself, I always get more views when I, when I, when I bitch, whine and complain. And I've tried to move away from that, uh, but because I just, it just gets me down. But, but I, so I, I will say this, uh, there's a lot to be positive 
this week. A lot to be positive about this week. There's some negative ones, but I'm, I'll try to keep my negative comments to 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 to, to the minimum because there's there's so many to review. And maybe I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll be. I won't say as much on the ones I don't like so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any books actually that I, that I didn't like this week. Um, there's just some that aren't quite as good good as others. So we'll kick it off with Wonder Woman Evolution Part Four. Stephanie Phillips is the writer, Mike Hawthorne on pencils, Adriano D. Benedetto handles the inks, Jordi Belair on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. I'm going to talk about the art first. Um, it's not my favorite pencil work that I've seen from Mike Hawthorne, but what I love about what he's doing here is there's a physicality to the art that is fantastic. Like Wonder Woman looks buff. Like the, his design for her, her costume kind of the, the double braids in her hair. I think they're, I think they're called French braids like that close to the skull going all the way up. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And she, she takes on the, the justice league. So we know that there's a trial going on and, and it was Rocky and I were both questioning why being that she's not even human, why these, I don't even know if they're ever named, but why these aliens, these extra dimensional beings, whoever they are, why they would pick wonder woman as a representative for humanity to defend humanity's existence it's when she's not even human. But it, it got explained as, well, she's chosen to leave Paradise Island to go to man's world. And, and, and basically she's sacrificed because she feels that humans as a species have worth. So that's why she's been chosen as the champion or the representative of, of mankind and whether or not they deserve to live. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I like that aspect of it from writer Stephanie Phillips. So she's having sort of these hallucinations or, uh, you know, maybe they're holographic images, some, some kind of projected realities that she's becoming a part of. And she's basically being tested and based on her decisions or her actions, I guess is how these beings are going to decide if humanity is, is, you know, worth surviving or not. So the scenario that's put forth is the age old idea of, you know, the life of one versus the life of many. There's this alien who's on earth. She's been labeled a terrorist by her planet because she's been rebelling against the government because apparently the government's been dumping all kinds of toxic waste into the ocean where her species lives. And so, you know, they call her a terrorist. She considers herself you know, a, a resistance fighter because she's fighting for the existence and freedom of her own species for the government to stop dumping toxic waste. So this planet is basically threatening to destroy all of Earth to invade and millions will die or they have to turn over this this one person. And Wonder Woman's taking the side of this one alien saying, no, we need to protect her. We need to give her sanctuary. If we turn her over, she'll be killed. The rest of the Justice League is saying, well, no, it's, it, you've got to weigh the life of one against the life of many. And, you know, we can't guarantee that more people won't die in the invasion if we don't hand her over. So, I mean, I can see both sides. You know, one of them like, we have to be better than this. We have to protect her and repel the invasion. You know, why can't we do both? So she's willing, Wonder Woman is, feels so strongly about this. She's willing to come to blows. And she, she basically starts fighting the Justice League. And like I said, uh, in terms of the art, it's very physical. It, it's a very uh, like the physicality of the art is, is at the forefront, which makes a lot of sense because Stephanie Phillips, the writer, she's a Muay Thai fighter herself. So, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that her and 
uh, Mike have been working on these fight scenes and whatnot. So <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the series. It's not as maybe highbrow as I initially thought it would be in terms of, um, you know, philosophical dilemmas and, and, you know, weighing the good of humanity versus the, the evil. But I say that we're only halfway through, so we could get there in the end. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, we're only on issue four of eight. So I'm enjoying this so far. Um, but I could see why somebody who's a big fan of Wonder Woman might not necessarily like it because it is sort of a different take. It's leaning much more into the idea of her as a fighter, as a, as a real physical presence, as opposed to some sort of, you know, idealized Amazonian princess or whatever, like a, a lot of the other takes of Wonder Woman that we've seen recently. Uh, so anyway, what, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, I, I, I like this issue for the... <clears throat> Uh, it reminds me, the last time I saw Wonder Woman take on the, the entire Justice League was in, in a real visceral fashion was Justice League League of One. It was a great hardcover that I have. And it's one of my one of my favorite Wonder Woman stories. And again, it's Wonder Woman Justice League League of One. It's it's really good. Th- this is um, now this is uh, this is all an illusion. And, we, we, and you, you kind of know that because everything up to this has been an illusion. She's she's been taken by these alien creatures to basically be the, she's got to stand up for humanity and defend humanity uh, because these aliens want to destroy humanity because humanity isn't worth saving. I, uh, my one criticism with this story so far, and it it's remained the same from the very beginning and it hasn't gone away. And the fact that we're at issue four, really it, it frankly bothers me even more and more is that we haven't gotten anything resembling what I would consider to be okay so what are you defending like if if wonder woman wonder woman might have the character that rises above and is willing to sacrifice and help people but that's not humanity like one like this entire story about wonder woman standing up to the justice league what relevance does this have to the to the central narrative itself about wonder woman about humanity deserving to be kept alive and not being destroyed why are the aliens doing this now? Now maybe that will be revealed in future issues, but this just seems out of sync with the central conceit of the entire story being Wonder Woman has to defend humanity. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman is clearly defending a woman in this story. She's defending this alien, and and she's and, you know and maybe that's what the aliens are doing. They're 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 putting Wonder Woman in various scenarios where Wonder Woman is. De- defending the alien and and this alien is a stand-in for i don't know humanity but the thing is wonder woman isn't human she's she's half god so just because wonder woman is so great at defending is so great at standing on principles and and is such a great person that doesn't mean mean humanity is she's got to defend humanity and 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 this to me is sort of I love the action. I love the action. Mike Hawthorne on the art. I, I think it's the art was a little better this issue than in past. I, I think it's it's interesting fighting the Justice League. Some great action sequences, but just the story itself, I'm sort of like left wondering what's kind of going on here. It's clear at the end that this is still just an illusion. But again, um, I'm 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 definitely checking it out, and 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 I'm curious to see. Ex- clearly, Stephanie Phillips is doing something different than my expectations have not been met, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because maybe this, this is where she's going and she's got a direction. And just because I'm not necessarily heading in that direction, I can still be converted. So I'm in, I'm in this, I'm curious to see where this is going. So uh, I'm, I'm in this, I, I'm still a little bit baffled by, by the, by the direction, but you know, the, 
you know, I'm curious enough that I'm, I'm definitely going to be sticking with it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny when you talk about defending humanity and he, like, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. We did get an explanation of why they chose Wonder Woman, but still you wonder what does this, you know, illusionary situation have to do with anything? And, and, you know, is it the justice league that's being judged? You know, are they representative of humanity? Cause when you look at who's there, we've got Superman. Well, he's not human. We've got Martian Manhunter. Well, he's not human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Hawkgirl technically is human, but Thanagarian yeah. powers. Yeah. John Stewart, human, but again, you know, his powers are come from an alien nature. So if you're really talking about humans with like human power or, or power that's that's not alien in nature, Batman obviously flash and then cyborg. So yeah. it's kind of it's kind of uh funny when you think of it from that level. So, uh, all right, let's move on to the next book. It's Catwoman number 40 from writer Tinny Howard. Nico Leone does the art. Jordi Blair on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, yeah, this is her Tinny Howard second issue. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, I, I continue to enjoy this. Uh, this, was, uh, this was actually a little bit uh, initially – oh, sorry – Initially, a little bit uh, surprising to me because I was, uh... sorry about that, got to do my adjustments here. Um, sorry, I, when I do these adjustments, it always throws me when I got to go first because I, I got I to gotta make the transitions <laughs> on, on, the, on the screens here. So uh, let me just get my bearings here. Okay. Okay, we're good to go. Uh, uh, Tinny Howard, I, I I like Tinny Howard's work so far. I, I don't know. I've I and some reviewers online I think have given her a hard time. I actually I quite enjoyed the opening issue, issue thirty nine. Her I, I kind of like sort of getting back into the world of uh, Genevieve Valentine. Her, her this is sort of building on a story of flowing out of when Catwoman Selena was sort of like a m member of the mafia and was sort of like a godmother. I kind of like this. She's sort of. This is getting back and she's she's taken on the mob. She's taken on the black mask. And this issue picks up where the last issue left off. And it appears that one of her, the women that she rescued from black mask this Christie has been murdered because um, I mean, Selena flowing out, coming out of fear state. Selena has been essentially sort of following the trail of, of money that that was, uh, I guess, part of being fed out of uh, being siphoned out of alley town. And she traces it basically to the black mask. And I, uh, the, the art here, the art here is, is what I particularly like. And is this, is this, this can't be the same. Is this Jean Paul Leon? No. No, it's be. Nico Leon. Nico Leon. Jean Paul Leon. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he passed away. But, yeah. yeah, that's right. I was going to say it can't be. I mean, but anyways, I, I love the art. I, the art here is just fantastic. I, I, it just, it just sort of pulled me in and it made me want to read this again. And it was, it was, it's really good. I'm enjoying this. I even like the, uh, I like the, this, this uh, Mr. Sullivan character. I like the, I, I like the, I like the involvement of Eco again, seeing her again. I like the fact that uh, we have what, what appears to be, you know, you know, two mafia brothers, br brothers of the same family, and, and one, and and the one, the the reason why the one, the one is not trying to make a power play, the one's simply trying to keep the secret 
of his homosexuality. He's in a he's in a same sex relationship, and of course. Uh, I remember watching The Sopranos and I remember that whole thing with The Sopranos where the one character on The Sopranos, I forget his name, he was secretly gay. And of course, that, that's a no-no in the, in, the, in the mafia. And he, when he was found out to be gay, eventually he was, he was killed because of it. And so uh, for some reason, I'm thinking of that Sopranos, that, that storyline in The Sopranos. Uh, and and uh, this, this Noah Goddard character who is um, uh, involved with... Uh, uh, he's involved with another uh, Dario's best friend and and right hand man. He's actually, I think, they're having an affair. If I understood the storyline correctly, and uh, and and that's what he really wants to keep secret. But unfortunately, he's not he's not tough enough. He doesn't have he doesn't have the shoot spot to be uh, ultimately to run the mob, and it's a sign of weakness. And uh, again, Tina Howard has put I, I think she's put a lot of story uh, a lot of thought into this storyline here. This is, I think, one of the criticisms of the first issue from other reviewers was that it was too exposition heavy, that the dialogue was too, that the dialogue was overwrought and that was a little bit uh, too dialogue heavy. And, and in my view, I, I didn't, I didn't feel that. I thought, I thought the issue 39 was pretty good. I enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed this. I love the characterization here. I love the fact that uh, I think Tini Howard does a good job of sh- of showcasing the character of of the, of the of the mobsters of the of the. I get a I get a strong sense that this is a crime family. This is Selena Kyle smack dab in the middle of a of a of the mob trying to do what she, trying to find out the information that she wants to find out while smack dab in the middle of this uh, of this I guess secret love affair between two ma- two mafiosos and. And and then you get this other character who who's brand new, and his name is uh, what's his name? Very interesting Valmont. character. What's what's his name? Valmont. Valmont. Yeah, very interesting character. And he's now he's I don't know if he's she couldn't tell if he's male or female, so I, I'm assuming he's trans or something because they they had a conversation where she wasn't sure if exactly what he was. So I don't know. This is Teeny Howard sort of maybe playing with that a little bit. So we got a homosexual relationship in the mod. We got in, in the mafia. We got a trans character, this uh, Valmont, and but he is he she he she they <laughs> maybe is an interesting character. I, I'll make sure I got a good pronoun right. But uh, in any event, uh, the fight scenes are real good. I thought it was well choreographed. The the art was good. I'm enjoying this. I'm not you know look. I love Ram V. I loved Ram V's Catwoman, but I'm you know. Uh, I'm really enjoying Teeny Howard's Taker. It's it's a different take, but I don't find it any less entertaining. I I, I enjoyed it. So, what do you think? Yeah, I didn't like it as much as you. I could certainly see why people would complain about the amount of exposition. I don't have a problem with the amount of exposition. It's clear to me that what Teeny Howard is trying to do is she's trying the way she's establishing the tone of the series mm-hmm. is through the voice of Selena herself as opposed to what Ram V did, which I loved, which was working closely with the artist, Fernando Blanco, mostly to set up uh, this idea of tone through setting and, and more through Catwoman's actions rather than her words. Uh, so there's, I wouldn't say that one is more valid than the other. They both can work. And I think what is working very well is the tone that Tinny is setting with the artwork that we're getting from Nico, Nico Leone, because you're hundred percent right that his art is, is beautiful. Uh, he's doing a lot of things here that there's uh, there's airbrushed, you know, digital painting 
type work. There's beautiful um, action and fight scenes. Jordi Belair gives us some spectacular color work, especially the kind of the neon lights, the neon pink lights of, uh, of Catwoman's motorcycle. So the, the tone of the book in terms of the, the look that's the visual look that's being established is, is fantastic. And I think it goes hand in hand with the voice that Selena is, is being provided through the words of, of Tinny Howard. If I have any complaint about it, it's that sometimes I think Tinny tries to be a little too clever. And there are times where what the exposition is just, it's a little obtuse. I'm not exactly sure what she's trying to say. And, and, and maybe that's purposeful and maybe the things that she's saying will pay off later on. But, you know, sometimes she's, you know, saying certain phrases or sentences or words or implying certain things. And it's not always clear to me what exactly she means. It, it's kind of I'm reading. It's pulling me out of the story where I have to go and, you know, reread what was said to try to understand. And it's, it doesn't make 100 percent sense to me. So uh, I I would say at this point, I can't. I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it as much as the Ram V run. I don't dislike it, but I, I'm still reserving judgment to see if I'm going to like it in the long term as much as I did the the Ram V um, Fernando Blanco run. But there's a lot to like, like you said, the Valmont thing, this idea of uh, this this mobster Fernando or uh, isn't it first name not Fernando D Dario uh, oh. Tommaso, who's yeah. apparently in the same sex relationship, like you said, with his best friend Noah Goddard and Noah's apparently willing to sell out his best friend uh, to become the heir. Basically, he's, yeah. he's going to take Dario's place uh, as uh, as the heir apparent to the crime family. Whereas, uh, like you said, Dario, he's he's you know more sensitive. He's got a softness to him. Where you know, he, if you gave him the choice, hey, you could have your true love with Noah here, or you could have the power of eventually taking over your crime family. He's going to choose the love. Whereas his friend Noah would would choose you know the power so that's an interesting dynamic there as well um again i i think think the jury's still out on exactly what tinny's trying to do here maybe she is leaning a little bit more toward kind of the the hard-boiled crime family sort of feel of of catwoman as opposed to what um what ramby was doing which is which was a little more anti-hero uh, again, one is not necessarily more valid than the other, but I, I couldn't say which one I'm enjoying more at this point. But what I will say is what Ram V did worked perfectly with the art of Fernando Blanco. And what Tinny is doing, Tinny Howard's doing here, is working perfectly with the art of Nico Leone. So, uh, and yeah, and Valmont, I'm, I'm very intrigued. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, up, next, up next, rather... We have uh, Hardware Season 1, Issue Number 4. It's written by Brandon Thomas. Pencils are by Dennis Cowan. Inks by Bill Sienkiewicz. Colors by Chris Sotomayor. Letters by Rob Lee. This is my favorite issue of the series so far. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say everything before this. The first three issues have been set up. But um, things are really starting to come together. Yeah. With, uh, with Curtis Metcalf basically finally sort of in the hardware armor in the way that we sort of expected him to be all along. And what I mean by that is the armor that he had was sort of cobbled together, you know, with the, him being blamed by uh, Alva for the big bang uh, that caused all the bang babies to have get powers and whatever. And 
you know, it was all on Alva purposefully trying to, to give these guys superpowers, these kids superpowers, and then exploit them. And so uh, Curtis had to go on the run. He wasn't prepared, I guess you could say. And so he was using armor that was cobbled together, like I said, and it had fail safes in there. He knew he was aware that there were fail safes in there. And so he wasn't as independent as he, as he might've wanted to be. So we learned in this issue that he, he took the time to make changes to all those fail safes. He's now fully armored up. And when, uh, they attempt to override the armor because of the microchips and technology that's in there created by all the industries. Metcalf's like, no, I knew you guys would do that. And now, I, you know, he's finally suited up. He's finally powered up. He's finally able and ready to take on Alva. And where we go from here, you know, it, it's going to be exciting to see because Alva also has been exposed by a couple of Metcalf's former girlfriends or one ex-wife, one, one girlfriend uh, as being you know, not the benevolent CEO of all the industries that he portrays himself as to the, the rest of the world. So, you know, is he going to be able to survive that? Probably, you know, those, those CEOs of companies tend to be able to let that stuff slide there. You know, just like in the real world, if you have enough money, you can get away with anything basically. Um, so what's going to happen there and with Alva basically saying, Hey, you can't badmouth me and, and turning his goons loose on, these women, hardware is going to have to save them, but he, he also needs to save his own neck because he's he's not exactly in a great position. The issue ends on a bit of a cliffhanger because there was a deadline for Alva's former partner, Asher, to turn Curtis Metcalf over to Alva. And the deadline has passed and Asher has not turned over Metcalf. So Alva has launched these missiles at the headquarters of uh of Asher's company in Singapore. So missiles bearing down on the headquarters where Asher and all his people are. And Metcalf was there as well using Asher's lab. So we have that going on. And in the meantime, the, the two women that uh, have been allies and have sort of outed uh, Alva as a, as a bad guy, uh, they're being attacked by these, uh, they're almost like zombie like creatures. So <laughs> there's a lot on, on hardware's plate. There's a lot on Curtis Metcalf's plate and we'll have to see how it all plays out in the next issue. Um, but yeah, this is my, like I said, my favorite issue so far, a lot happened. Storylines are all coming together. Metcalf's really starting to take charge, uh, of, you know, really feels like he has some agency and he's going to start kicking some butt and the art by Dennis Cowan is, you know, as great as Dennis Cowan's art has ever been very visceral, uh, full of action, full of angst, uh, yeah, so uh, really enjoyed it. I I feel like this one, this specifically this series, but specifically this issue of this series, feels or felt like more like the classic milestone era, classic the way milestone felt back in the nineties. This issue felt more like that, more yeah, authentic than any issue of anything I've read so far. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I, I attribute that primarily to Dennis Collins' art. Yeah, that might. Yeah, that very well might be the case. I mean, I've loved Icon and Rocket. I've loved Static. They're they're all good. Um, Icon and Rocket might be my favorite, actually. But in terms of, yeah, feeling like the most like former milestone, and and it might not just be Cowan's art. It's also probably the color because the tone, the color tones here from uh, Chris Sotomayor kind of harken back 
Because if you remember those milestone books back in the day, they weren't super primary. They weren't super bright colored. They were a little more muted. Uh, and it seemed to be that way across the line, which gave them kind of their own unique look. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, what did you think? Uh, well, I, I, I agree with you 100% that this this the story finally started coming together here in issue four. And I really liked it. I, I it, it sort of it, we've had a lot of buildup. And it, now it starts. We finally started to see that uh, Curtis Metcalf finally you know he he's not just a he's not just a victim here Curtis Metcalf was set up he was blamed for what went wrong during the big bang parade what's been known as the big bang uh, which led to all those kids getting their powers and he was uh you know uh, Edwin Alva the head of the Alva you know that that corporation you know they they blame their head guy Curtis Metcalf for doing it this all comes to a head uh Curtis Curtis Metcalf uh when when the big bang happened that led to the creation of all these kids with the powers, including static and what have you. We we find out that while he was gone, he was gone for an entire week. Well, Curtis Metcalf basically tells his his uh, former partner Asher that, "What did you think I was? You know, I I was away. I was I was in another country that that's only twelve hours away, but I was gone for a whole week. What did you think I was doing for that entire week?" Well, he was planning for this. We find out that Curtis Metcalf was planning exactly what's taking place in this issue and will likely continue on in, the, in subsequent issues. And that is, he was planning for all this. And he, and he, and he, he created tech that would help to further infiltrate uh, Alva Industries. And that's what continues in this issue. And But of course, Alva has a failsafe, which is of course missiles, because Asher, as you said, was to bring Curtis Metcalf in. And while... While Kurt, uh, while Curtis Metcalf, uh, i.e. hardware, has been successful in at least getting uh, Tiffany Evans and, and other people to talk, to come forward and talk to the press, exposing Edwin Alva uh, and his machinations, the reality is that Alva does have that safeguard and, and uh, as a way to sort of take out uh, Tiffany Evans as well as to take out uh, hardware himself with missiles and hard. <laughs> missiles and, and weapons and what have you, but everything's coming to a head here. And I like it. We're four issues in and we're finally starting to get a little bit more movement to the story. I thought the first three issues dragged a little bit. This issue sort of, it picks up again. And and again, uh, Dennis Cowan, you know, there's something about his art. I, every time I see his art, I'm always reminded of the question. I, I was th- th- think of that 80s series with, with, with Denny O'Neill with the question. And I just love seeing the art, even though the art, I'll be honest, sometimes the art feels a little bit sort of, it's unrefined and sometimes a little choppy. There's something, a, something sort of visceral about it that I just like. And I... I just and and it's a, just an inherent bias that I have to like this style of art, and uh, I'm really enjoying this. And like you said, uh, uh, this this isn't as much as I'm enjoying hardware. I Icon and Rocket, like you, that's my favorite uh, of the Milestone comics, and, and Static is enjoyable too by Vita Ayala. But yeah, this this was a this was a pretty good. Uh, this is this is pretty good. And um, I should I should give a shout out to, to Chillmonger, another YouTuber. Chillmonger and I, in March, we're going to be doing a, a retrospective on all the milestone DC comics and the stories uh, since over the last year, uh, in the next uh, in the next month or so. But yeah, I'm enjoying this. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Blood Syndicate. Jeffrey Thorne is writing that one, and we right. haven't yeah. been shy about giving him a bad time about Green Lantern. But if you guys yeah. don't listen to the uh, New Comics Wednesdays that I do. Uh, I absolutely loved the the Amazing Spider-Man issue that Jeffrey Thorne recently did. So the guy can write for sure, just maybe not John Stewart. 
Um, so looking forward to Blood Syndicate. And then, like I said, there's a, a title called Duo coming up, which is actually Zombie. They've just they've renamed it probably because so much zombie content since, you know, the ni- early 90s when that series first came out for Milestone. The other thing I'll say about Dennis Cowan's art in this is he is being inked by Bill Sienkiewicz. And Sienkiewicz has much more of a, a visceral kind of impressionistic style. So if there's any time where uh, Cowan's art doesn't feel quite complete or, or seems a little more sketchy, it's probably the influence of the inks from Sienkiewicz. Yeah. Uh, okay, up next we have the conclusion of the Batman versus Bigby, a Wolf in Gotham series. This is issue number six. It, it just as easily could have called it Batman and Fables. Uh, it's written by the creator of Fables, Bill Willingham. Brian Level handles the interior uh, pencils. Jay Leistein and Anthony Fowler Jr. interior inks. Uh, Lee Luffridge on colors and Steve Wands on letters. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about this issue. What I will say is it felt a little anticlimactic. anticlimactic. Um, you know, like we, we saw it was revealed last issue that Bookworm, you know, a la uh, like Harry Potter, where the, the, the teacher had the, um, you know, other face of Voldemort on the back of his head. Yeah. Bookworm <laughs> took off his hat and there was a, a face on top of his face uh, or on top of his head. And, uh, we f- we don't find out till the very very end who it is, and then it's just the ghost of this old woman who I don't have any context for who she really is, but yeah, she certainly she, yeah, it's Toten Kinder. She she's the ulti- she's one of the witches that for in, in the original fable story she was like the long time secret like right yeah uh, enemy right, like, behind the scenes and, that yeah, was ultimately and that, defeated. That's yeah, and that's exactly the impression I got. Bigby certainly knew who she was, but again, like I've said throughout. If you haven't read Fables, you're not a fan of Fables, then a lot of this stuff just goes right over your head. And so that's that's kind of how I felt. Like maybe if you're a fan of Fables and you find out you, you, you're you bringing something to this and you find out that, yeah, it's Totenkinder. You're like, oh, it's so cool. It's Totenkinder. But for me, it just was like, okay, it's some old lady, I, whatever. I don't – you know, I, I, I'm not bringing anything to it. So it lacked <laughs> impact completely yeah. and it felt super anticlimactic for me. So – I think overall the series was super enjoyable. I think what I liked about it the most, uh, well, first of all, the art was fantastic from Brian Level. Really kind of a visceral, dirty, street-level Gotham. That always worked on many levels. Uh, and also, he they blew up a shit ton of buildings in Gotham City. <laughs> Gotham City is worse for the wear uh, for this series, and it's going to look like you know a, a hockey player that's had a bunch of random teeth knocked out here and there. There's holes in the skyline because they blew up so many damn buildings. Every every issue, some buildings being blown up. Um, so I, I think Brian Level did a fantastic job, and it was really cool. Uh, a lot of great visuals, and this one, Batman. Um, he chomps down on a on a false tooth and he says, oh, it's an antidote. And they're like, wait, antidote for what? And he's like this. And he launches all this gas out of his belt and it's like a full page uh, spread. And it's it's fantastic. It's wonderful. So the art was amazing. Uh, and the story overall, this was um, Bill Willingham has given us a much more. Uh, I don't want to say violent, but he's given us a Batman with an edge, you know, kind of like what Garth Ennis gave us in the Batman reptilian series he did with, um, with Liam Sharp. This is a Batman who's uh, he's not shy about being brutal. You know, he's, he's much more about, I'm going to get results, whatever it takes. Uh, So I, I appreciated that. There's no subtlety here to Batman. 
uh, in Bill Willingham's uh, in Bill Willingham's hands. So from that aspect, I, I really enjoyed it. But from the actual narrative of the story, eh, I, I almost felt like not much happened in this in this last issue other than the reveal of that person that's apparently important to you if you if you've read fables so which i know you have rocky so this probably landed for you a lot better than it did for me what did you think uh well well actually i i'm gonna give i don't know if this is an underhanded compliment or an, or maybe an overhanded dig uh of all the fable stories i've read this is probably i would rank this as probably last uh this is uh I actually don't think this has done fables any services, to be honest with you. I, I don't think anyone reading this. Well, in fact, I can ask you: would, if anybody reading this would they would they have any inclination to go and read fables? And my answer would be probably not. This is a Batman story. This isn't a fable story. This is more of a bat. This is this was very Batman centric to me, and in fact, this was all about propping up Batman in many ways. Even Big B Wolf, all his powers of of tracking and scenting, and there was even a scene in this issue where. His tracking powers were made useless, and Batman, you know, Batman could tell how many people were in the building, but, but Bigby's powers were all taken away because of the scent and because of the enemy that they're facing is a is a former fable, and they know how to cloak themselves. And uh, like again, as a fable reader, I, I like this, but if I'm really honest, I didn't, I never, I never, I never asked for this. I didn't, I don't need a Batman v Bigby story, but it's 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 fun and. And very clearly, what what I like what Bill Willingham did here is that he he utilized the multiverse as he brought Big B Wolf and the Fables into a into a universe of his own Batman. That this Batman had his own Robins, had his own Robin verse, had his own series of Robins, different Robins had his and and a different way of going about things. As you said, he was a little bit darker Batman, a little bit more visceral, a little bit more maybe uh, maybe more hardcore. And so I like that aspect of it. This Batman is more in line, has probably more in common with Big B than the mainstream DC Universe Batman. And I and I, and I liked it. It was like I I question though how many people reading this who've never read Fables, if they're gonna be inclined to go read Fables. Because I got to tell you, the actual Fable story, even though Bill Willingham wrote this, Fables has a very very different visual feel to it. Because uh, Mark uh, Buckingham on, on the art is very different. Than the artist, uh, than the artist here, who is, um, who's the artist here? Um, Brian Level. Brian Level, yeah. Now, and I, I don't mean no, I mean no disrespect to Brian Level whatsoever. His art is is excellent. It's really good. But this is this is uh, this is not fables. Like this, this does not have the fables feel to it. And I, I, I thought this was a curious choice for Bill Willingham to sort of engage in simply because he, the Fables has such a unique visual look to it because, and it's all Mark, Mark Buckingham to, to, to engage in this with Batman and allow Batman to almost overshadow Fables. I thought it was a very curious choice. Uh, but, but I get it. I mean, I don't think it's going to hurt because I'm so glad to hear that Fables is continuing at issue 151 and not starting at number one. Good for you, Bill Willingham. Start at issue 151. Continue the fantastic story you're telling with Fables. There's so many stories to tell with the Fables. And uh, and and look, it, th- I'm sure it's not a coincidence that they wanted this to showcase the Fables. But I'm actually wondering to what extent, like, I don't know, do you have any curiosity? Once you, you've read this, uh, Jace, let me ask you, would, do you, are you curious about picking up Fables at issue 151 after reading this? 
No, and I've well, had people <laughs> recommend I've had people recommend Fables to me before. Yeah. Um, here's the thing: like, I, there used to be a show on ABC called Once Upon a Time. Yeah, and I know it started after Fables, but it's basically sort of similar, right? Like, it's supposedly modern day, and these characters from fairy tales are, you know, kind of just living. You know, here's here's Cinderella, here's Snow White, here's blah blah blah. And my uh, my wife used to watch the show, and I would catch snippets of it now and then, and I I just hated every single second of it that I saw, and so. You know, I heard people saying, oh, yeah, fables, it's like fairy tale as modern times or whatever. No, maybe it's unfair of me to associate the two because it's kind of the same concept. But, you know, they're made by completely different creative teams. But I have absolutely no desire to see, you know, the Big Bad Wolf or Red Riding Hood or Snow White or whatever in, in, you know, modern times telling crime stories, whatever. Absolutely no desire whatsoever. So reading this has not change that for me at all i gave this a try um but yeah I, you know oftentimes i say uh i'm not enjoying this or i'm not enjoying that i'm going to stop reading it and then and i'm not going to cover it when we do the, our spotlights and then i end up reading anyway like harley quinn we're going to talk about in a little bit it's a perfect example i keep reading harley quinn even though i say harley's not you know i don't really care about the character and whatever i can tell you definitively I will not be reading and reviewing fables for these spotlights. You will be on your own on that one. <laughs> just, I just won't do it. It's just, I don't have any interest. I don't think it's bad. I'm not saying anything about Willingham. I, I don't know. I haven't read it, so I can't comment on it. It just, it, it holds zero interest for me. I'm not going to spend the time to read it. If I wasn't so busy, maybe I would, but yeah, I'm not going to make time for it. So. No worries, I get it. So many, so many great comics out there. You can only read so many of them. I mean, yeah, exactly. Pumping exactly. out, it's and hard I, enough to read yeah, sixteen and, comics. And, <laughs> exactly, and the other thing is, like, it's issue one fifty one. With I would, I would not feel right unless I went back and read the first hundred and fifty. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. Come on, man. I'm trying to read. <laughs> I'm trying to read five hundred issues of Spawn this year. Uh, okay, let, let's move. Let's move on. Blue and gold number six. From writer Dan Jurgens, Ryan Sook handles the pencils. Sook and Wade Von Grobager do the inks. Steve Buccioletto and Chris Sotomayor on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Oh my God, the art in this issue! Uh, just Ryan Ryan Sook, man. Ryan Sook is—he's amazing. He's such a fantastic artist, and it's not even his his rendering. Although I love his rendering, don't get me wrong. But his storytelling, his 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 sense of uh, emotion uh, tone. Like I, I love it. I, I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, as far as the story itself, I thought that was pretty solid too. I mean, th this has been a great story for fans of blue beetle and booster gold blue, you know, blue and the gold is what it's called. Six of eight. We're talking about here issue six of eight. Um, but what's been great. Dan Jurgens has balanced very well giving longtime readers and fans of these characters something new, a compelling story, the jokes and the relationship between Booster and Blue Beetle is there. It's all paying off. You're getting all, all the stuff that you expect as a fan of those two characters. And so it's very satisfying as a fan and a reader of, of these characters. But I got to think of the sense that I get, and I, you know, I could be wrong because I, I do know these characters, but the sense that I get, the feeling that I get is if you're not a fan of these characters, you're not as familiar with them 
or with Rip Hunter that as a new reader, you're getting everything you need. Like he, he does such a great job. Jurgens does such a great job of, um, of not being over expositional, but giving you what you need so that you have the context and the understanding of the history of these characters, specifically with the relationship between Rip Hunter and Booster Gold um, that's explored a little bit in this issue so that you can come into this series brand new. If you've never read any booster or blue beetle stuff or rip hunter stuff, as it pertains to these two. And you're, you're again, you're getting what you need to enjoy this. Uh, and so I think that's a really hard thing to do. And I think Jurgens is doing it really, really well. So uh, this sort of feel, felt like the end of the series, a lot of what's been happening in the series so far the plot lines, the threads get tied up in this issue for the most part, uh, but we still have two issues left. So that's what's great as well, because um, for the last, what is it on the last page, the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle shows up and all of a sudden we have something else that happens where you're like, wait, what? What's going on? Because the storyline that's been happening in the first six issues sort of wraps up. So I was starting to wonder, well, what, what's left for the last two? Apparently... Uh, we're going to find out. And and it makes me think that maybe this was originally going to be an ongoing or or Dan Jurgens could make this. An, like, why isn't this an ongoing is the question I'm, I'm you know, getting at, basically, because I think this should be because I think it works uh, on a lot of levels. Uh, so anyway, what did you think? Uh, I loved it. And I don't uh, I look, I'll, you know. Full disclosure here, I was never a huge Booster Gold fan or a huge Blue Beetle fan. Even though uh, I know I know that's odd, especially it's even more odd when I, I can legitimately say I think I own every Booster Gold issue that's ever been published. And I think I own every Blue Beetle comic, going back to Charlton. And but I, I've never been obsessed with I've never really been all that interested in the characters. Is this one of those things I acquire through just you know, I'm a long-time collector, and I, I just acquire these comics over time. And I think only a long-time collector will know what I'm saying when I'm saying this. Maybe, JC, you understand, too, that I do I do have – I sometimes will acquire an entire series. And even though I'm not really a fan of the series, it's, you know, it's 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 an addiction problem, and I probably need therapy. But you know, you know how it is. It's just the way it is. But the, what I love about this is that you're so right. You hit the nail on the head when you talk about Dan Jurgens. I feel like – I feel redeemed for not having been so passionate about Booster Gold and Blue Beetle in the past because the guy spells everything out and, and it's not exposition heavy. You know, we compare this to Catwoman under Teeny Howard, not to pick on Teeny Howard. I, I like Catwoman. I'm enjoying it. But there there does seem to be sort of a gift to being able to say some, to say more with less. And Dan Jurgen seems to really nail it here. And uh, am I wrong in saying this is a speculator alert issue? Maybe I'm wrong, but the revelation that occurs in this issue has this been revealed before? I, Is it? I think it has. I think it has. It has. Okay, yeah, maybe it has, yeah. and I, I forget. But yeah. I, yeah, but that that was that was. Uh, I did not know that Rip Rip Hunter was the son of Booster Gold. I, I it never even if that if that was been revealed in the past, it went in it went in through my eyes and out, out the back of my head and I completely forgot. Yeah. So I, I thought the same thing. I was like that. So that was news to me, but I haven't read every, uh, <laughs> you know, every issue of, of, of booster. And, you know, I know he, one of his series had a lot to do with Rip Hunter and time, 
but, time travel and what have you. So I, I went and I looked actually, and on the DC wiki, um, there's an alias listed for Rip Hunter as like basically Michael Carter Jr., which is Booster Gold's name. So, and this issue hasn't come out yet, so nobody would have had time to go and change that. So it must have been revealed. Previously. Well then, well then it's interesting then because then who Booster Gold's mother? There's a scene here that I got up on the screen, and it it shows. I mean, it, it looks to me as if Booster's mother. It's likely Rip Hunter here is talking to his mother, because she's got red hair just like him. So is he talking to his mother here? I think, think? yeah. I think maybe <laughs> yeah. I think maybe Terry, who was the very first person that blue that Booster Gold met when he traveled back in time in that 1987 series from uh, from Dan Jurgens. She's the first person that he met and there was always like sexual tension between the two of them. So I don't know that his mother has ever been revealed, uh, but yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if that's who his mom yeah. is. So I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm going to go out on a limb here and I don't know if we've got confirmation. Maybe we've had theories in the past, but this to me seems to be a little bit more in your face about it. I would, uh, you know, again, I stand to be corrected, and uh, clearly you've corrected me. I guess it's been speculated on in the past, but I think, I think this is an issue worth picking up. Number one, art's fantastic. Ryan Sook's art's absolutely fantastic. So good. I love what Rip Hunter did by going back in the time and and dealing with Princess Omnizon's claim that Earth is hers. That ten thousands of years ago she claimed Earth. Uh, he went and he he messed with time and to to suggest that maybe that he he removed the marker off Earth or had someone had had someone else had Terry do it, <laughs> move the marker on another planet. So he's sort of playing the game so that Princess Omnizon no longer has the claim to Earth and. So they've, they've made an enemy there, but I really love this. Dan Jurgens has managed to take Booster Gold mythology, Booster Gold lore, Rip Hunter, uh, the, the, the paternity of Rip Hunter, the maternity of, of Rip Hunter, uh, creating another interesting arch enemy with this Princess Omnizon, and wrapped it all in a nice little bubble and ended this issue with uh, uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie uh, the, the new Blue Beetle. What's his last yeah, name? Rick Raynan? Reyes, Reyes, yeah. Thank you, Jamie Reyes as the Blue Beetle showing up at the end and he seems to be possessed or something. Anyways, this is very well done. I mean, fans of Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, I mean, this is, this is, this is, this was quite enjoyable to read. Yep, I agree. Uh, okay, let's move on. I'm really curious to know what you think of this one. So it's Aquaman number one. This has been a long time coming. Countdown to Aquaman, Prelude to Aquaman, all kinds of stuff, both the Jackson Hyde Aquaman the Becoming and the um, the Black Mana series that recently ended have been a prelude to this. There's also about 75,000 variant covers, so if you're a big Aquaman fan, good luck collecting all those. Uh, variant covers by Nick Robles and Jim Lee and Alexis Franklin, uh, Kale Nagu, Travis Moore, like just, there's just a ton of them. So, uh, But anyway, it's written by Chuck Brown and Brandon Thomas. The art is fantastic by Sammy Basri. Colors are by Adriana Lucas. Letters by And World Design. Uh, yeah, again, long time coming. It's finally here. Uh, did it do anything for you? <laughs> well, it, it it did one thing that I'm really glad it did. It it redeemed a little bit Chuck Brown's writing in my eyes because I thought Chuck Brown maybe I I I kept thinking that Chuck Brown's Chuck Brown was the writer of Black Manta, and we reviewed all. Uh, six issues of Black Manta, and we thought it was 
if I was to over, if I was to summarize our general feeling of it, is that it was, it was, uh, perhaps a little bit convoluted, and and the art was not very good on Black Manta. In all the six issues, it was the art did not serve the story very well, but the story was there. I think it's fair to say, Jason, you and I could sort of piece together the remnants of a story that was probably better than the art suggested it was. Would probably be the most polite way of putting it. But I, I'm pleased to discover here that, you know, Chuck Brown shares the writing duties here with, uh, I believe, Brandon Thomas. Uh, now, I don't know if it means anything on a comic book cover, but Chuck Brown, the Brown name is above Thomas. So does that mean he has top billing? <laughs> I don't know if that means anything. But if Chuck Brown did more of the writing here, let's just assume that for the sake of argument. I actually thought this was... Uh, thankfully because of the because of the art of Sam Badger I, I thought this story came across uh, I enjoyed this story much more this is um, I'm not exactly sure how it necessarily flows directly from Black Manta uh, the storyline there or even from Aquaman The Becoming which Brandon Thomas wrote but you, you can see you, you, you can see the connections there there, there are at least references and what this issue starts off with Orm, the ocean master, attacking the United United Nations, and he wants to kill the Atlantean ambassador for being too weak and not being aggressive enough dealing with the surface world nations. And it's clear that the ocean master has something else going on here. And essentially, ocean master attach, attacks the United Nations with this giant serpent sea creature and Aquaman shows up or Arthur Curry shows up with Jackson Hyde and they are both referred to as Aquaman in the world's media and it's clear that what's going on is as you read through the story there's 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 different what I'm guessing to be there's different people around the world that are seem to be they suddenly they start exhibiting Atlantean DNA and they start speaking in a different language and in Paris, France, Black Manta, David Hyde, Black Manta encounters one of these individuals that's sort of taken over uh, their alien DNA is sort of take or their Atlantean DNA is taking over and they're speaking in an ancient dialect and and it looks almost as if they're almost part of a terrorist faction because this issue ends with one of these Atlantean agents in Ohio in the United States sort of, you know, buying a bunch of stuff from home hardware and creating a bomb. And it's like it's creating a bunch of chaos and domestic terrorism. So I'm getting the sense that there's that if I'm piecing together what's going on, I think Ocean Master is maybe working, is has a plot that involves Atlantean secret agents with various people around the globe, they they have ancient, they have Atlantean DNA in them and they're connecting with that DNA somehow, that Atlantean DNA. And they're, they're utilizing these, these people who've sort of over the centuries, you know, humans have interacted with Atlanteans and that their Atlantean DNA is being activated and, and they become unwilling agents of the ocean master, or at least the bad guy in this story. And it's up to Ocean. It's it's up to Arthur Curry, Jackson Hyde, and Black Manta, who's more of an antihero now, to stop this massive plot, presumably headed by Ocean Master or some other person, to sort of take revenge on the surface world. Now, maybe I got that wrong. 
that's that's this is just an opening issue. I'm reading between the lines of the narrative here, so I could be wrong on the on some of these details. I'm speculating, but it's exactly the type of speculation that I like doing. And the fact that I got enough seeds in this opening issue for me to make to speculate like that, that puts a smile on my face. That gets I'm interested in in going to the next issue too. So I'm in for this Aquaman. I like this. I love the fact that we're dealing with Arthur Curry, with we're dealing with Jackson Hyde. We got Ocean Master here. We got uh, we got the the disgruntled relationship, this functional relationship between Jackson Hyde and his father, the Black Manta. That comes into play at the end when when they discover that uh, when Jackson Hyde discovers that Arthur Curry is working with Black Manta, and we got hints of that because at the end, on the final page of the Aquaman. The Becoming series, Arthur Curry met Black Manta in a bar <laughs> because Black Manta had had foiled a plot by Devil Ray to destroy and blow up different portions of Atlantis. And so we know that Black Manta is more of an anti-hero now, maybe even more of a hero, who knows, moving forward. And we also know Jackson Hyde is dealing with anger issues, which is also a hint of that, this issue. So I thought that I was genuinely pleased with this. Now... I hope that I thought the art was a little bit uh, Sam Basri's art was a little. I thought I thought it was a little bit uh, choppy in parts. I thought the there was a juxtaposition between different battle scenes. There was a juxtaposition of battle scenes when 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 uh, uh, Black Manta was battling in in Paris and against the the battle scene where Jackson Hyde was battling the serpent in in New York. I thought that was uh, an an odd sequence to. To, to have those panels juxtaposed alongside each other. I didn't think that worked as well as I wished it, it did. I thought the, I thought the, some of the panels and the sequences of the actions were, were not as good as I'd like them to be. There was a sequence at the end uh, where they were defeating the, the defeating ocean master that I thought it was kind of choppy and a little bit, uh, it, it could have been better, but overall I understood what was going on and I, I'm interested in the story. That's the most important thing. I can forgive bad art if I really can get into the story. This wasn't bad art. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it was, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm being too nitpicky here. But overall, I, I'm really curious to see where this is going. And uh, is it worth all the hype and the buildup? I don't know. But I can tell you that I don't think it's necessary for people to read. It's Thankfully, it's not absolutely necessary to read Black Manta. And Aquaman the Becoming to get into this. And I hope people give it a shot. What do you think? Yeah, I actually loved the alternating between Jackson fighting the serpent and his father fighting this sleeper Atlantean agent, I guess we'll call them. Uh, going back and forth. I, I thought that worked really well. I thought the, yeah, you're right. There, there are times where the, the art looks a little rushed. Uh, the rendering is not quite as good. Uh, in, as it is in other places. But overall, I, I really enjoyed the art. Uh, the only problem that I have with it, I, I, I echo a lot of what you said. I think that overall, I love the story. It's very intriguing. The thing I don't like, and I, I talked about this at the first issue of Black Manta, you know, putting aside the art that we didn't care for on that series throughout, I just don't care for the idea of turning Black Manta into an anti-hero or like to use your phrase, even a, even a hero. Um yeah. He's even getting along with Aquaman. Like, come on, come on. What? Sacrilege. Like, like that, yeah. That's like totally out of character for both of these guys. 
So th- that's the part that I knew I would struggle with. And sure enough, I do like even, even like setting aside the final scene where Aquaman is, you know, putting himself between father and son, trying to keep them from battling, just seeing uh, black Mana sitting in this fancy French restaurant with a bow tie on in a suit, you know, sunglasses. It's like, he reminds me of like Idris Elba, uh, which actually in the final issue, it felt like they were purposely drawing in the final issue of the black Mana series. I don't know if I mentioned this when we reviewed it, but it felt like they were, they must've used Idris Elba whoever the artist was, I think it was uh, Matthew Dow Smith must've been using Idris Elba as, as reference. Cause it, it really looked like, uh, looked like that's who black Manta was as opposed to the actor. I think it's Jay white, the guy that played um, spawn. I think it's the guy yeah, that plays black Manta. Yeah, yeah. In, in the movie. Uh, but, but regardless, it, I mean, he's sitting there looking like a secret agent instead of looking like a super villain. And I don't know, man, Black Mana, he's just, he's one of those guys that just, he seems beyond redemption to me, but it, I guess nobody's beyond redemption if you can make Lex Luthor a hero. But I wasn't a fan of when they did that either, when Jeff Johns did that. So that's the part I, I'm struggling with. The the story itself, yeah, there's there's some interesting ideas. Uh, it it I, I agree with Rocky, you don't necessarily need to have read Black Manta or, um, or Aquaman the Becoming. Certainly it, what carries over from Aquaman the Becoming is uh, Jackson mentions, you know, a few times his mother being, you know, ha- not re- having recovered from the injuries she sustained in that series. And, you know, obviously he's, he still has anger issues with his father. That stuff's sort of explored in Aquaman the Becoming. Uh, and then the, uh, the Black Mana series, what carries over that you would need to know is basically this oracalum mineral or element or whatever you want to call it that black manta has a trident made out of um that he can access even while he's sitting in the restaurant he's he's accessing that that trident which can sense other atlantean artifacts and dna and whatnot so but again it's not necessary you don't need to go back and read those series you can you can pick this up um and and hit the ground running so um if anything i would say Arthur Curry, you know, of, of the three, apparently, like Rocky said, both Jackson Hyde and Arthur Curry referred to as Aquaman. I have no problem with that. Um, but I think even in this context of the story, even uh, Black Manta is considered an Aquaman in terms of this. It's This is a story of three Aquamen is is the kind of the impression I'm getting, or at least what will be at. It is the title the of the series, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but But for me, it felt like, Arthur has the the least time in the spotlight, and and maybe deservedly so. He's had many many issues of comics. Jackson Hyde and Black Mana have had, you know, infinitesimally fewer. So you know maybe it is time for these other two to shine. But of the three characters, I like Arthur Curry the best. So I'm gonna you know I want him to have more of the spotlight. But maybe that's not the the um, the purpose of the series, and that's okay. So I, I certainly uh, am much more interested and invested in Arthur Curry or uh, uh, Jackson Hyde rather after reading the Future State uh, Aquaman series. Um, I, I like his look. So well, yeah, we'll see how this plays out. I, I'm definitely intrigued. Uh, okay, up next we have Action Comics number one thousand and forty. This is from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. 
uh, Ricardo Federici, Federici does the interior art, Lee Luffridge on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Um, yeah, War World. <laughs> uh, this is part five. And yeah, I think you and I are diverging on our, on, uh, over the last few issues have diverged on how we felt about this. You've been enjoying it much more than me. Uh, so what were your thoughts on this issue? <laughs> well, I, I continue to enjoy it. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the impression maybe you continue to diverge, but I continue to merge with the thought process <laughs> of Philip Kennedy Johnson, the writer here. I'm, I'm in, I'm enjoying this. We're getting more and more into the mythology of war world. Uh, and I really, uh, I, I'm enjoying it. Uh, Mongo has plans for the United Planets that will not work if Superman is dead. So if people are wondering why doesn't Mongo just kill Superman, it's ba that's why. Mongo has some long-term plans here. This isn't just Mongo who's, you know, Mongo has, is, is one in the, in the line of many Mongols who have controlled war world but mongol has plans here that goes far beyond his predecessors in the past the mongol who was is does not have as many long-term plans as the mongol who now is and part of mongol's plans here involves being keeping superman alive so he can complete his machinations because he's got he's got plans i'm one can reasonably assume that involve universal conquest and taking over the united planets and now What's great about here is so much happens in this issue and and a lot of it is it's Philip Kennedy Johnson does a good job in my mind what really stood out for me is the is the character work in that that you know Superman is having an impact on his fellow captives on his fellow fighters and especially in this issue there's a couple of children where who a brother and a sister who are indoctrinated into the mindset of, of of fighting for for chains and every time you defeat somebody you get their chain and the longer the longer your chains are the more the more victory you've had in battle and the more pride you can take in and the more the more reverence you will get and that and you're going to be more beholden to to mongol who you should aspire to be because he is the one who holds your chains and the idea here is that you know mongol here right away it, it's where the reader were impacted by how much of a jerk and how much of a tyrant mongol is because he approaches two children who show their reverence to him these these two phalosians who must abandon their their native heritage they're not phalosians anymore they're war zones it doesn't matter what planet you're from when the minute the the moment that you've been taken over and you are captive and you are a gladiator fighting on war world, you are no longer what your home world is. You're no longer a fail ocean. You are a war zone. That is your life. That is your destiny. And that will never change. And these two children that Mongol confronts, he basically tells one, one sibling to kill the other to show your loyalty. And of course, <laughs> Superman jumps right in front. He won't let that happen. And he shows, Superman shows his defiance of Mongol. And everybody sees this. And, and Mongol's own cohorts, Mongol's own uh, underlings are saying, you must kill this Superman. He's making a, he's making a fool out of you. He's, he's, he's inspiring the masses. But Mongol, no, Mongol doesn't. Mongol has plans for Superman that go beyond that. And, and so something is going on behind the scenes here that we're not yet totally privy to Mongol's full plans. And Mongol is clearly underestimating Superman because going on behind the scenes, Superman is, uh, he, he, uh, Krillux, Krillux, another fellow gladiator, has taken him to the tombs that are located under Warworld. And in these tombs, 
uh, written in, in, in a language that even Mongol himself may not fully understand or the underlings of Mongol don't fully understand. It's written in, in, in fragments of even uh, of the Genesis fragment. And, and what makes it more interesting is that Superman becomes privy to Midnighter's plans because we got to wonder where Midnighter is. We got to remember in an early issue, Midnighter had an opportunity. Midnighter had an opportunity to rescue Superman, but Superman refused saying, no, I can't leave these people. It's revealed here that Midnighter has a has a master plan to basically take down uh, to take down one of the power structures that controls Warworld that would return Superman's powers. But in order to do that, it would re- result in the destruction and death of many Theologians and many of the people. And he doesn't want to do that. And so Superman is against that. Well, Krillux has another plan, saying there's another way that we can maybe win the day and but you got to follow me and he takes them to the tombs underneath war world and superman sees that there's a lot of power because you know you know how how powerful the genesis fragment is we know that in the earlier issues when the when a genesis fragment was found and the atlanteans and the united states government fought over it in those earlier issues of action comics so we got so much happening here meanwhile we got Omak being tempted to side with Mongol uh, in return, they'll, they'll restore, they will restore to life Leah, her lover. And meanwhile, Midnighter one is telling Superman, look, I got a plan to break you out. You got to do this. So Superman, we got so much happening all at once. <laughs> man, I, uh, I got to tell you, man, I respectfully disagree with you if you're not getting behind this story because I am just, I'm captivated by this. I'm excited by this. And... Uh, I don't know, man. What, what What's bothering you about this issue? It's not a Superman story. <laughs> well, that, that, I mean, that's just the, that's the bottom line. Uh, you know, I sound like a broken record. This is as far as Superman as a gladiator fighting on War World. It's been done before. Roger Stern. It's been done before. It's been done better. The story itself, like, so let's put aside the fact that it, I don't feel like it's a Superman story. Um, is it a good story? Yes. Like take Superman out, put in Adam Strange, put in Warlord, put in any number of characters instead of Superman, and I would be singing the story's praises. But it doesn't feel like a Superman story because you've you've had to jump through all these hoops as as a as a reader, as a fan of Superman, my favorite character, I have to jump through all these hoops in order for, for this story to actually happen. Well, he, you know, he already was losing his powers on Earth. And then, oh, by, by the way, he, he had like this illusion that was going on that made him look like he was still normal and didn't have gray hair. And now there's these uh, engines in War World that are sapping his power. Like all these conditions to make it where why can't Superman just like swoop in and, and save everybody? Because he really is way more powerful than anybody on War World. So it's just, it's one too many things, you know, like, Hey, is this a good story in terms of, you know, the drama that's being built and trying to rescue these people from where they're captive and, and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's a great story. The art by Ricardo Federici, great story, but it doesn't feel to me like a Superman story. You know, like we didn't give Bendis a pass in, um, in the latest man of steel series when he went through all the machinations to remove Lois from the book, to remove John Kent from the book, because we all felt like, well, Bendis wanted to write a Superman comic or Superman comics where he was writing Superman and Superman didn't, wasn't married and he didn't have a kid. And, you know, 
he wanted to, to write Superman and not the supporting cast. A bunch of people, not just us, a bunch of people railed against that, saying, look at all the stuff you had to do to, to, to get to where you wanted Superman. But now Philip Kenny Johnson's sort of doing the same thing so that he can tell this story and we're and we're going to say, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm not going to give him a pass on it. It just it doesn't feel like a Superman story to me, but I'm not saying it's a bad story. I'm just saying for me personally, it is not working. I wish the story was told with somebody else like I, this to me, like with Adam Strange in the lead. I think would be fantastic. Well, would you have uh, to change it around a, a little bit? Yeah, you'd have to change it around a little bit because he's obviously not as powerful as Superman or what have you. Um, but I, I think it, I think it could still work. Um, but I don't know. That, again, it's just me. I know I'm in, probably in the minority, uh, and there is a lot to like here. And you know, if I set aside the fact that I've had to jump through all these hoops, and then yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting. Well, I just uh, I just want to give a, a counterpoint to your comments, which I, I, I certainly uh, I, I believe I understand where you're coming from. The counterpoint that I would point out, though, is that I, I don't think I disagree respectfully with your point of view that any character could replace Superman in this story because it's because, I didn't say any character. Well, you I said Adam Strange. Any- so I'll even pick Adam Strange. The fact is, is that. Only Superman could get away with going to War World and not ha- and and frankly, he's not afraid of dying. If he dies, he dies. He'll die for his cause. But Mongol won't kill Superman because he's Superman. Because Mongol has plans because he doesn't want to kill somebody as great as Superman yet. And that and so he's underestimating Superman. And plus Superman is there to save the Phaeolosians. And Superman is reminding everyone there that don't lose your identity. Just like Superman doesn't lose the fact that he's Kryptonian while he can be human. He's telling him, Don't lose your identity to the people. Yeah, obviously you have to change things. Man. So I, and not, I said that character. obviously you'd have to change things. It wouldn't like if not Adam Strange or somebody else could I I I no, I, I disagree you, with you, you just, that. Not not just well, any you, character you, can pull that off. I I think I think this is perfectly suited for the type of of character that Superman is and what he aspires to be. Especially when you talk about hope and truth. Anybody and but that. But anybody can inspire hope. That's what I'm saying. You change the story. You're a writer. That's your job. Bring in Adam Street. Mid just use Midnighter. Use Apollo. Anybody can 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 be that guy that can inspire hope. It doesn't have to be Superman. Does it work better to fit Superman in terms of hope? Yeah, it does. But you had to jump through all these other hoops to get there. You And, and as far as the Mongol aspect and a hey, United planets, whatever, yes, you might have to, you know, abandon that part of the story and you build something else. You, you know, if it's Adam strange, he sneaks in maybe. And, and, you know, they're not even necessarily aware that he's Adam strange or whatever. Obviously the story would have to change. But in my mind, it's it's too many hoops to jump through to depower Superman. Like at that point, well, it's, a young, so de- it's a red sun. So that's 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 not. I don't think that's a huge hoop to jump through. It's a red sun, which is empowered by a, a bunch of powerful. There's, you know, I mean, I, I the, don't think so that's the war world. So the war world travels through. It's not necessarily red sun. It's these reactors that are hmm. putting out red sun radiation Fair because. Enough, yeah. The war world travels through. It might be in a yellow sun area. It might be in a red sun area, whatever. But, but if it was just that, then maybe I could get by with that. But it wasn't just that. It was oh, 
by the way, he was already losing his powers. Oh, by the way, he looked different. Oh, by the way, it was an illusion. Oh, by the way, there's the reactors with red sun radiation. It's just, it's too much stuff. I don't, I personally, I just don't like, I'm glad that you're enjoying it, but nobody and nothing will ever convince me that this is a Superman story. Uh, I wonder not feel like a Superman story. Yeah. I, I wonder to what extent though, that, that maybe what's, what's emboldening and empowering your, your, your very, you know, your very strong opinion on this is the fact that it's just the continuity that led up to it. Because I think if, because there was so much con- wonky continuity that led to it, that if, but for that continuity, I think this is a really good story that in and of itself. So I, I, I agree with you that there's, that there's some wonky continuity leading to this. That was, that sort of, that, that maybe takes away from it if you focus on it so much. And, and, and believe me, I can relate because I'm, I'm usually a continuity nerd, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm really enjoying this and it's not too often. What I love, what I really love about this. I love the fact that Superman is depowered for once. He feels actually that he can actually be hurt, that he can actually be human, that he can actually suffer, that, that, that he can actually be wrong, that his, that his motives, however pure can actually be a hindrance to uh, a win at the end of the day and that's what i like about it because it's it's sort of uh it's 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 not convenient it's not this isn't necessarily yes, rocky probably- but again i go back to this exact story has been done he's been depowered and that made way more sense because he was out in space for an extended period of time when he was first depowered after post crisis, well, how many people remember that? Like, I, I, look, I, I love John, I love that Superman in space, John Burns, as much as anybody. But th- this feels like a th- this for me. This doesn't feel like the same kind of story. This has a very different tone to it, a very different feel to it that, that, than I recall that story being. But, but you know, but I, I mean, I, I hear you, man. I, we'll we'll I, agree I, to disagree. <laughs> I, I mean, yes, you're right. That story was decades ago. Maybe you know long time, you know, I'm a long time reader. This is going to be new for a lot of people. You want to tell a story, but I mean, oh my God, dude, you're in space. Uh, Like there's too many similarities. It's, it's, you're in space again. Superman is depowered again. It's war world again. He's wearing gladiator costume again. Like, you know, like if you wanted to, to tell a story that was similar, okay. But I mean, this is, this is like direct, remake you know i don't know yeah i guess agree, agree to disagree I, and 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 again i like the story it just it doesn't feel like a superman story to me it just doesn't fair so, enough uh well- <laughs> dc versus vampires number five is the next book uh let me get the credits written by james tynan and matthew rosenberg this issue has art by uh, Otto Schmidt and Simone uh, DeMeo. Letters by Tom Napolitano. Uh, we are almost halfway through. This is number five of a 12-issue series. What do you think? Uh, what I love about this issue, I just, I want to give Tinian and uh, James Tinian in the fourth and Matthew Rosenberg, I just love the battle sequences here. I, th- this was just, this was just, Awesome. I loved it. It was Batman and Green Arrow versus Wonder Woman and the Flash versus and, and Hawkgirl and in, in the Batcave. And meanwhile, we got Task Force X, Task Force X or 
I'm I'm confusing my task forces. Task Force X or X, yeah, Justice League or the Suicide Squad uh does battle as well. I love this. Uh we find out that uh Deadshot, Harley and Boomerang uh, are uh uh th- they end up uh, discovering that the Joker is a vampire. Uh, par- uh, the parasite savant and savant uh, are vampires as well as King Shark. And King Shark ends up eating the black spider, who's an insignificant member of the Suicide Squad here. Uh, uh, Batman, I-, I love I I love the sequence. If, you know, the there's a... Uh, this issue consists of essentially two battle sequences. It's the sequences of Batman and Green Arrow taking on the Justice League in the Batcave, where where basically Batman and Green Arrow have their heart that they have their work cut out for them. How in the hell do you escape the Batcave? I don't care who you are. You got Wonder Woman, Superman, Green Lantern, and the Flash, and Hawkgirl, and all you got is Batman and Green Arrow on the other side, both non-powered, superpowered being. Come on, I mean, I mean, I mean, even if look. I know Batman's Batman, but I'm thinking you guys are screwed. I, I I don't care that Batman throws kryptonite sawdust in Superman's face. You still got Wonder Woman to deal with. How the hell are you going to escape? Credit to Tinian and Rosenberg. They actually convinced me that, yeah, I guess it's, I believe it. I actually believe that Batman and Green Arrow can escape that. Uh, thanks to Damien coming in on his motorcycle and, and smashing into Wonder Woman at the end. And uh, Hawkgirl, poor Hawkgirl, discovering that Wonder Woman is a vampire. Uh, alas, too late. Hawkgirl is turned and made into a vampire at the end. But, wow, talk about action. And the dialogue is spot on. I mean, you know, T- Tinian really knows these characters and it shows. And, and you know, Matthew Rosenberg, man, I, I want to sing his praises because you and I, we've really been impressed by Matthew Rosenberg. Uh, especially with his, uh, he started off with the long con. He came to DC and he did that uh, in the Batman urban legends, the long con with that. Um, um, uh, who's the character <laughs> on Batman Grifter. urban legends. Uh, Grifter. Grifter. Thank you. I mean, just, he, he really, he knows these characters and he's doing a great job on task force uh, Z and I just, what a great team. I love what Tini and Rosenberg are doing here. I love the fact that there's uh, the tension in this issue between Batman, Green Arrow, and, and Justice League as they talk. And they're trying to, you know, they, you know, they're trying to tell each other that, no, no, you're, you, you got vampires on your side. No, you got your vampires on your side. And meanwhile, you got, when, when you switch to the scenes with Task Force X, it's, you got, we got a different artist. So we got Otto Schmidt and uh, uh, Simon, uh, Simone DeMaio, uh, you got different you got different visual it's interesting how the different visuals of the fight scenes really it it actually feels very different but yet just as impactful and it makes you realize that it gives you a sense that there's more at stake here and and the fact that you got the suicide squad in this and i love the fact that deadshot harley and boomerang are not yet vampires and that they're i just love that and you can really get a sense that this is building. This is building. And and then at the end, when you discover that Superman, Superman finally sort of wakes up because he was knocked out from the Superman from the kryptonite mist that Batman inject sort of like threw at his face. And then you got a you got a vampire 
Green Lantern and a vampire Wonder Woman behind Superman. You got to wonder, is Superman a, a victim here? Does Superman even know what's going on? Like, I'm wondering, is Superman this much of an idiot? He seems, Superman seems to be the dumbest guy in the room. He's like, he, he doesn't know what's going on. Everybody has some idea what's going on. In fact, even the people that seem to be confused seem to be more on the ball than Superman. But anyways, I love this. Uh, I, I love that the, the character moments where, you know, Green, Green Arrow, you know, all, all, Oliver Queen has, has a chance to kill Green Lantern, but he, he doesn't have the heart to hit Hal Jordan in the heart. So he, he intentionally misses the heart. And Batman even scolds him for it. But it's Hal. It's Hal. You don't understand. I mean, I mean, it's... This is really great. As as a longtime reader and as someone who arrogantly believes that I know these characters, I feel that Tinian and Rosenberg know these characters too. I just, I love this. I enjoyed this. I just, I, I don't want to say more about it. I want people to just pick up this issue to enjoy it. Uh, you'll just have a blast with it. It's that much fun. Otto Schmidt on the art. Simone de Mayo. Fantastic. I loved it. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it was okay. I, I didn't like it anywhere near as much as you. Um, I've been loving the series and overall, I think it's very strong and I, I highly recommend it. You know, we're what, five, six issues into to reviews here. And we have our, our second Batman hollow tooth moment. Um, so that was interesting with him <laughs> yeah. blowing the, the kryptonite gas in, in Superman's face. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you said, the, the, what you seem to love about it is, is kind of what I, I, I didn't like this was my least favorite of the the issues of DC versus vampires so far because it didn't advance the story at all in terms of the whole conspiracy behind the scenes sort of aspect of the story. Like you said, it's just two big fights. It's, it's Batman and green arrow against the justice league in the Batcave, and it's suicide X um, or suicide uh, task force X suicide squad against Joker henchmen who've been turned into um to vampires and then some of task force X even get turned into vampires. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the, the narrative moving forward a little more than we got in this issue is the fight between Batman and green arrow and the rest of the justice league. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's cool. Um, the suicide squad fight less. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm just ready to, okay. I, I want more of the actual, the actual narrative. So, yeah, a, a lot to enjoy, especially the color work of Otto Schmidt. Uh, both these artists color themselves. That's sort of what I what I didn't like about the Simone DeMeo pages. Um, he, so much of it is just red or orange or, or like these grays. And so uh, it felt so monochromatic. Like the, every one of his pages has like a red filter over it or just about. And so I, I didn't care for the color work on those pages. I didn't think it did any favors as opposed to the Otto Schmidt uh, pages where things are much more primary and, and different. But um, I can see why they brought in Simone DeMeo because the Otto Schmidt line work is not quite as sharp in this one as it has been. So I'm, I'm wondering if just the the nature of uh, the schedule was, was catching up to him and he needed some help. So I'm all for bringing in another artist if it keeps the series on track. I, I wouldn't want it to lose momentum because it is a heck of a lot of fun. It's just in terms of um, moving the story forward significantly, this this issue doesn't really do that. Um, it's just a big fight issue, which, you know, maybe you need that sometimes. Uh, you know, fans certainly will enjoy uh, getting the answers to some questions. Hey, who would win in a fight with? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, you, and you, yeah, and you, and you find out. So, 
How about how about the best line in the comic for me was when Damien, you know, breaks into the Batcave and says, "Hey, Wonder Woman, what do you think of our new Bat motorcycle?" And he smashes the motorcycle into yeah, Wonder Woman. Yeah, smashes the motorcycle. I just yeah. thought, I I don't know, that put a shitty grin on my face again. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed this. You know, you know, sometimes you know, we, I know there's a lot happening with with different plot lines and events, but sometimes this is this is one comic where we know it's it's in its own universe and I can relax my brain. I don't need to worry about continuity. If something doesn't line up, it doesn't matter. It's in its own universe. It's in its own world. People can die. Different characters can do things a little different. And I, I just have I just have so much fun with this issue. So I just that's what I love about this. And I, I I'm I'm really glad that DC approved this and uh, I I think that we need this. And I don't know about you, but we review so many comics. I kind of like because we review so much DC, I kind of like the fact that there's one DC comic, at least, that is really its its own world where they can kind of do and have a little bit of fun and go nuts once in a while. And that's what this is for me. So it's it's almost therapeutic to me. So I, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, definitely continuity light. Because um, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the yellow weakness removed from the Green Lantern rings? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And that's, was, that's, yeah. yeah. And it's like, so yellow. that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just took it with a grain of salt and said, "Okay, different, different universe. Maybe in this universe that didn't happen." So that's exactly right. So yeah, we got to yeah. cut it some slack. So yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, well, let's move on. Uh, you know what? I just realized we didn't talk in the action comics. Maybe with our disagreement, we didn't talk about the Martian Manhunter backup, which oh. you haven't been enjoying, and I, I have been. Uh, okay. And I'll just I'll... say I, I did enjoy it, and you probably didn't. Okay, well, uh, we can so, go back to the Action Comics backup here. Just give me some... Yeah, I just, I just realized. Uh, uh, so, it, yeah. I, go ahead. I've been enjoying it. I think that... Um, I, I do feel like this whole Vulture um, collective or whatever it's called, it feels so much like Court of Owls, looks like Court of Owls. I'm not aware of it, but, you know, being them being... Um, some sort of legacy villain for uh, Martian Manhunter, but the way they're referenced in the story makes it seem like that's the case. Um, but regardless, I do like how they're bringing in a legacy feel uh, for Martian Manhunter because he's he's the character that's been around in the Justice League that's been around the longest, who is probably the least well-known and, and doesn't get the credit for being you know, like a founding member of the Justice League and, and so often he's forgotten. So um, I appreciate that writer Sean Aldridge is, is trying to bring in this legacy feel for John Jones. Uh, I think the art by Adriana Mello is fantastic. The colors by Hi-Fi are great. Uh, Dave Sharp does the letters. So I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Um, I'm, I, you know, again, I know you're, you, you probably feel the exact opposite of me. I mean, I, I at least this feels like a Martian Manhunter story as opposed to the main, which doesn't feel like a Superman story for me anyway. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really digging it. Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with you. We're not going to argue as we wouldn't argue much on this one. I will say this, that I, I do think that one of the reasons why Martian Manhunter has never been a character that's resonated a lot with me is that, he doesn't because he doesn't have a connection to a. He never really. He doesn't really seem to have a connection to any other character on Earth. Any other character. He's everything about Martian Manhunter is unique unto his own, and so 
I, I can never get a handle where I feel I can relate to him oddly enough. You know, for example, with Superman, there's Lois Lane, there's Jimmy Olsen, there's a whole slew of si other characters that I can use as sort of a way to, to relate and get a handle on, on, on Superman. Martian Manhunter always seems to be sort of a loner and he's afraid of fire and he's always he's always about his angst and his, 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 his issues. And but what I like about this is that if it's establishing, if, if it is establishing more of a, a, a mythology for him, that is a better thing. I mean, the fact that if, if, if we are getting into like, if there is sort of going to be like a, I don't know if it's a court of owls thing or some sort of legacy with him, they need to establish with Martian Manhunter some sort of long-term history with Earth that goes beyond simply Mars, but a connection to Earth. And maybe that's what this is, but... You know, the bottom line is, I'm not giving this backup as much attention as it as it deserves, and I and I apologize. Uh, Adriana Mello, her art her art's fantastic. I I do generally like her when she draws her, her own style, not when she tries to copy Joelle Jones, like she did <laughs> Wonder Girl a few times or whatever it was. But in any event, I don't. You know, I will say this: I do think that the backup feature for Action Comics. It should have been, if ever there was a Midnighter backup feature in Action Comics, it should have been now, as opposed in the past. <laughs> you know, I, I'm having a Midnighter backup in Action Comics while Superman is in War World and Midnighter's doing his own thing. Why not have a Midnighter backup, Midnighter as the backup, because he's on another part of War World. But that's just me, you know, being maybe critical of uh, uh, editorial. But in any event, I'm not... I'm sorry, but I'm so I'm so in into the Superman hype, the hype train on the on War World that I'm enjoying. This this Martian Manhunter thing is just like passing me by, and I hate to say it, but it's true. I I'm just not like I I, re, I read this, I, I I get to the end of Superman, and and this is like an afterthought to me, and and I hate to say that, but that's just the way it is. But uh, so be it. Uh, all right, well, moving on, Detective Comics number one thousand fifty four. This is uh, continuing the weekly The Tower storyline. We're up to part eight. Mariko Tamaki is the writer. Max Reiner does the art. Luis Guerrero on colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Uh, let's talk about the art first. Uh, man, the um, the Max Reiner art, it, it's, been, it's been a little inconsistent. Like th This one feels very on par with the first issue that he did. Not to say the art is bad. It just doesn't feel it, – it's very a very different style than the Yvonne Reese art that we had on the first, whatever, six six issues. Um, but then the second uh, issue that Max Rayner did, so that would be uh, last issue, it felt like he was moving more in the direction of having his art look more like Yvonne Reese's art. And now this is a step back again. So, um, you know – like Max Rainer, just draw like you draw, draw like yourself, and that's fine. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm reading more into it than than is actually there. But you know, look, this one is background light again, like the first issue he did. So I, I'm not sure. Um, not sure what's going on. Maybe he had more time in the, the second issue he drew, which allowed him to be a little more detailed. This one he was more rushed. I, I don't know. Uh, but it is something that I that I noticed. But the, the colors are spot on. And the art is good. The transitions, the storytelling, and all that are great from panel to panel. Um, it's just something that I notice in terms of detail. As far as the story goes, uh, yeah, man, I'm I'm digging the story. I really love it. Uh, the the Nightwing psycho pirate uh, 
scenes here are especially enjoyable, uh, as is seeing the penguin biting into the back of a raw fish. Although there's no <laughs> there's no backbone on that fish there. There's no like really he bit through the the bone like the bones of it too. That's not not sure that's how it works. But uh, in any event, uh, it, it yeah this is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Doctor wears in a crap ton of trouble. Uh, and yeah, it's leading to what we saw in that first issue. So the only nitpick I have in the story is one that we, you know, have mentioned several times. Was it really necessary to start that first issue by kind of giving away the, the big climax of Dr. Ware being dead and, uh, everything going to hell inside the tower? Would, would this not, would the story not have been better served if we didn't know that was coming? Um, so, yeah, I, I am really enjoying this, though. What do you think? Yeah, I thought that, uh, you know, things are really coming ahead per Tobias. Tobias Ware, he's not really a doctor. So when we say Dr. Ware, we're, we're being facetious because he's not really a doctor. He's a con artist. He's a master con artist. Con, con artist. If I was at a difficult time, a lifelong affliction, I can't say con artist. I, I grew up not being able to say my R's and try to say con artist. It's when you can't say your R's, it's difficult. In any event, he's not really a doctor, but per Tobias Ware, at least he, he did one thing right. When he was a young boy, he befriended a man by the name, a young boy by the name of Roger Hayden, who would grow up to be Psycho Pirate. Now, Psycho Pirate comes off, you know, he comes off dealing with uh, Dark Side, and he uses Psycho Pirate to control the inmates of Arkham Asylum. And so what we've discovered through Marika Tamaki's, I think, very well-written epic so far, is that he's using Psycho Pirate to control the inmates, to control the patients of Arkham Tower. But the one thing that are the one the one advantage that Roger Hayden had is that there was a limited number of patients. There's only so many people that he needed to control. And Tobias Ware, Dr. Ware, could utilize, could, could feed Roger Hayden could feed Psycho Pirate like high caffeine drinks and drugs to keep him awake long enough during the day to have control over the patients, to give the illusion that the patients were being cured. And and in the meantime, the whole idea was to trick Dr. Uh, Meridium Chase in order to convince Mayor Nakano of giving him $6 million worth of funding. And we are now on day 24, and we know from the very first issue of this story that day 24 is when everything hits the fan. We know when this is the day that everything goes wrong, and it's in this issue, Detective Comics 1054. This is day 24, so we're waiting. So those of us who've been reading from the beginning, we know right from the beginning that this is the issue. Maybe there are things start to go really wrong. And we know what happens. Everything comes to a head because Tobias Ware, he's pissed off the party crashers, which are the, the drug trafficking gang of Gotham that he's been feeding them this drug called Numb. And of course, he's also, he's into, he owes the Penguin a lot of money and the Penguin has been financing him. And the whole idea is that Tobias needs to complete this, uh, this, this massive con through the help of the psycho pirate so he can get the $6 million from Mayor Nakano, the funding, so he can pay off the penguin, pay, deal with his drug problems with the party crashers, and then take off and he, he you know, and, and be successful. Bear in mind that Tobias Ware, he's, he's every single con he's ever pulled off, he, he's always been successful. He's never had an unsuccessful con yet. That, that's what we've been told in previous issues. 
Uh, I think Mariko Tamaki's done a good job here. She's worked with a lot of characters. There's a lot of characters here from Anna Volshin to Huntress to Nightwing to uh, to to uh, Batwoman to Oracle to uh, Cassandra Kane to Stephanie uh, Stephanie Powers. And we know that all this is coming to a head. Marika Tamaki's done a good job of weaving all these characters in. This feels like a story that I, I, I love. I, I actually like the fact that this is week to week. I don't know about you, Jace, but the fact that I'm getting, I'm every week I'm reading the next chapter. I haven't forgotten, which is weird for me because I always joke about the fact that I have a bad memory, but I still remember the previous issue because it's only a week since I read the last one. So I like the fact I, I love the covers. I love the covers to each issue. The, the, the cover style of all these issues has been really good of the of the cover A's of the of Batman Detective Comics. I, I've been loving the covers. It's a different artistic style. And and so the, the the cover art has been consistent on cover A's from issue to issue. I uh, I remember the storyline. It's consistent from issue to issue. And this isn't a complex storyline. This is just a guy, Dr. Tobias, where he's Tobias. He hates the mentally ill. He has got no love for him whatsoever. His mom was mentally ill. He doesn't care about him at all. He just wants to make a quick buck. And he's doing it when Gotham is at their weakest. I'm enjoying this. I, I I really enjoy the fact that Nightwing in this issue overcomes Psycho Pirate's mental manipulations, primarily because Psycho Pirate is overwhelmed because the party crashers crash into Arkham Tower because they're pissed off with, with Tobias. They want to get even with Tobias because they, they're they're tired of waiting for their for their stash, for their for their drug haul. And they break in, they stab one of the people while Tobias is given while Tobias is given a press conference. Unfortunately, that coincides with with Psycho Pirate losing control of the masses because there's too many people for him to control. So it all falls apart and everything builds to a head and everything that could go wrong does go wrong. And wow, like I said, I think this is going to read really good as a trade, this issue, because you can you can really see and I can really feel the tension builds from issue to issue because it's just been a week apart. And I think if this was a month apart, we wouldn't feel this tension build. But I've been feeling the tension build. I've been enjoying this. And uh, even though Batman is nowhere to be seen, I'm not missing Batman. And that's the highest compliment that I can give to Marika Tamaki. I'm enjoying the Batman family being front and center at this. I'm really enjoying it. My favorite character is the Huntress. I think she's kick-ass. And I'm enjoying it. What do you think? Yeah, I think it'll be two trades. It is slated to be 12 issues, three months. So this is part eight. We have four more to go. Um, I think you said Stephanie Powers. I think it's. I think you meant Stephanie Brown. Spoiler. Oh, I apologize, Stephanie Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Stephanie Powers. I think that's an actress, Stephanie. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I, this is the most we've seen Chase Meridian, um, you know, outside of the – Val Kilmer Batman movie. So I wonder if she'll hang around after this. I would be all for her hanging around and being a supporting member of uh, the Batman family and uh, heading up Alfred Pennyworth Tower uh, after I'll use quotations, Dr. Ware, you know, is off the table here. So yeah, fantastic stuff. And uh, there is a backup House of Gotham, Chapter 8, Matthew Rosenberg, is the writer Fernando Blanco does art, Jordi Belair on colors, Rob Lee on letters. How interesting we finally get some context for the story in terms of when when is this going down? When is this taking place? We see a a wheelchair bound Bruce Wayne after his back has been broken. 
Uh, he's all bandaged up and in, in a lot of pain. And then we see circa 1994, <laughs> yeah. John Paul, uh, Valley, Azrael in the, the bat, the Batman kind of robotic armor costume um, with Tim Drake as the, uh, the, his Robin. And he, if you've read that stuff back in the day, it's not particularly good, but it's certainly iconic, that cover of Bane breaking Batman's back. Um, but yeah, he, John Paul Valley, he, he went, he went like Punisher mode. He went overzealous uh, as zealots often do, you know, that's where the term comes from. And this kid is, is, is Bruce Wayne had sent Tim Drake out there to, to rescue this kid. He knew the kid didn't belong in, in, um, Arkham Asylum. He knew the kid needed help, and Tim Drake's out there trying to t- to help him and bring him in. And John Paul Valley's like, it's just a kid, and he's firing bat darts at him, and and <laughs> he falls off a bridge and may even be dead for all we know. He's probably not dead for terms of the story, but uh, really interesting to have this story in this context. It it brings the whole story, it gives it a different tone and a different feel, and I'm more intrigued than ever to find out where this is going and who this kid is. So what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I, I don't know who this kid is. I, you know, we, you and I speculated earlier that may, is this Nero, but I'm thinking like that, that seems almost too obvious. Cause this, this kid has red hair and red, Nero has red hair. So is it Nero? I think that's too, that's too obvious. And so I think it's, this kid is somebody different. And, but what, what I really love about what Matthew Rosenberger's done here is that he has done his homework and, and not that, 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 I mean, it's not, not that it's a lot of work to, to, to be familiar with the nightfall and, and the night quest and, and the night, you know, the rising of the, the night and the, and the Azrael, John Powell Valley being Batman for that period of time. It's, it's a very, it's a very popular, uh, story of, of in the mythology of Batman, but I like the fact that it, it's, it incorporates the origin of this young kid. And I like the fact that this kid might end up being a villain, a new legacy villain, because we've got a lot of new legacy heroes in the DC universe. And so it makes sense. We should start seeing more new legacy villains. In other words, what, what's, you know, all these heroes that have helped, you know, Superman's had a career, Batman's had this long and distinguished career of ups and downs surely we've had some villains that have arisen because of their adventures. And this is one kid that you got to wonder, who is this kid? Who is this kid? And because his name has never been mentioned. We don't know who this kid is. We've been, we're in chapter eight of house of Gotham. We don't know the name of this kid. If, if, if I, am I, am I right on that? I don't think we know the name of this kid or any, somehow Matthew Rosenberg has created a story here where we're sort of captivated by who is this kid? Why is he, he seems to, he seems to be screwed up. And yet he seems just when he's about to be rescued by Robin and maybe becoming, maybe healed from his mental anguish or mental illness or whatever he's going through his mental trauma, always something else seems to happen to him. And everything that happens to him seems to be related to Batman. So you can kind of see it's that, you know, it's just like, Typical Gotham, right? I mean, whatever happens in Gotham, if something bad happens to you, you're going to end up blaming Batman and being the next Batman rogues uh, rogues member. But in any event, it's captivating. And 
it's it's a little bit comical at this point, <laughs> but Matthew Rosenberg's done a good job here. I'm I'm curious as hell as to who the hell this redheaded kid is, and I'm reminded again of that old expression, you know, you know, beat that kid like a redheaded stepchild. I mean, uh, that's this is what I think of every time I read this, but I I, I mean that in a, in in a flattering way because I am curious as to who in the hell is this kid, and because I tell you. It would be brilliant if they just ended this and then two or three months from now, we got a villain shows up with red hair and boom, that's the revelation. Speculator alert. I think all these back issues, the first issue where this kid shows up, speculator alert, people. I mean, it's keep an eye on it. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, all right. Up next, we finally have the identity of Red X revealed, supposedly, sort of. Kind of. Uh, Teen Titans Academy number 12 from writer Tim Sheridan. Uh, Tom Derenick is the artist. Alex Sinclair on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Uh, like I said at the top of the episode, we know this is ending in a couple of months. Uh, it's probably a good thing. It just hasn't been able to find its stride. But uh, what did you think of this issue, Rocky? Dare oh, I ask? Man. Uh, well, uh well, first, let's say that, first of all, I think you guessed it along with many others. And, and I, uh, full disclosure, I, I didn't, I didn't guess it because I never really put much, much thought into it. Um, but it, it's, you know, Red X is brick. Who? Brick. Yeah. Red X is brick. Yeah. Who's brick? Well, you know, if you, if you don't know who brick is, uh, you know, you're forgiven because, even though I might have a bad memory, the fact is I've been reading every issue here and I didn't really care about a character named Brick. Um, in fact, the only clue that you have that this makes sense why this character is called Brick is that his gloves look like they've got like a brick image on them in purple. And in, in any event, I, I, it's revealed in this issue that that Red X, I thought Red X, I thought there was three people that were Red X. Apparently there was four. Yeah. I, you know, it was four. I th there was Nightwing, there's Brick, and then there's this other character. So we, we still don't know who the older Brick, the older Red X is. So it, it's still, it's still misleading. We know that the student Red X is Brick. Okay. So what? So we know that whenever, whenever, because in the earlier issues, whenever they, when there was a crossover between Teen Titans Academy and Suicide Squad, when we had the Red X show up, that was more, we thought it was maybe an artist. I thought it was an artist, an error on the artist because he looked older. And then another time Red X would appear and he would look younger. I thought that, was that an, was that an error in the artist or was that an error? Like, I didn't know. And and uh, you can say, well, I'm an ignorant reader, but no, I fault, I, I'll, I fault the story for that. And I also fault the characters for that. How in the hell can the characters confuse an adult character in a costume versus a child in a costume? Brick is small. He's a, he's a teenager versus the other Red X who's taller. He's like, this is just, this whole thing. I, I'm so glad. Like I, I want to, I want to, I want to be careful with my words here. I, I, I don't wish cancellation on any title. And I know Teen Titans Academy is canceled as of the end of fifth issue 15 but i can't help but wonder if the disjointed narrative of these first of these first 12 issues this disjointed narrative of this you had a character that everybody was talking about people were talking about red x at, at future state they were talking about it it had so much potential 
And talk about a squandered talk opportunity, a missed opportunity to focus on a character that could have been interesting, but wasn't and hasn't been interesting and, and has remained uninteresting virtually from the, you know, from the beginning. And I'm so disappointed in this. And I, um, you know, the, the revelation here that it's brick, I don't think anybody cares. I don't care. I, I don't really have much to say about this. I've, I've, I'm, I did my best through 11 issues. I was pretty hard on this, this time when we reviewed it last issue. And so I'm not, I'm, I just, I can't, I can't work up the necessary, uh, you know, even the issue here where it's revealed that it's brick. Brick is taller than he was as a student in the early issues. So this is an artistic failure as well. It just straight up is. Uh, I, 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 and I'm not even sure. Uh, I, I'm not even sure what the point is. I, I, I don't understand. And then there's another red X that shows up. That apparently does Dick Grayson know who the other red X is? So now there's more than red one red X. Here's why I I, I think that Teen Titans Academy was canceled. It's that this issue reveals more than anything that this wasn't a teen. This wasn't a this wasn't a school. This was not a Teen Titans Academy comic book. This was a Red X story from beginning to end. And we got a couple of detours where we had a couple, we had a summer holiday where the students went off and had an adventure against Gorilla, Gorilla Grodd. And, and we had a couple of side issues there that were really, they, they were actually collateral issues to the main issue of a Red X story. This has been a Red X story. This has been a Red X story that has resulted in the destruction of Teen Titans Academy. And this has not been a story about Teen Titans Academy. So it makes sense that it was canceled. And I hate to say that because I, I do think a lot of these characters have potential. I, I'm not writing them off because I do think that there's interesting. I think Stitch has potential. I think the bat, that the, sort of like the Brat Pack has potential. I, I like Miguel from Dial H for Hero. I think that there's, there's, there's interest there. But there's so many significant misses here. First of all, the original Titans should not be teachers. They're mentors. They're not teachers. Nightwing should not be t- Mr. Nightwing, Mr. Star, Mrs. Starfire, Mr. Cyborg. Are you kidding me? Please. They're not teachers. They're mentors. There's a huge difference. If you don't understand the difference between the two, don't write the comic. I- I'm sorry, but I, I feel it- this was such a huge miss. This was a huge miss in- from concept from concept to story. And I don't care who Red X is anymore. And and besides, there's four of them, apparently. Four of them. I, we know who two of them were. We know Nightwing was one, and we know Brick is the other. I don't know who the other two are, and I don't care. It's canceled. I, I think there's only three. Where I don't, I'm not sure. Well, where I you're thought I read there was four. Is is there only three? Okay, so okay, I guess there's I think three. there's only yeah. I mean, yeah, there's this adult Red X who. I mean, obviously, the whole thing about Red well, X. Well, why, yeah, why I'm on the page right now. Uh, the one guy says Brick's actually the fourth Red X, which the Bat Pack found out the night he tried to recruit us. He says that right in the dialogue. Brick's actually the fourth Red X. You reading that? Yeah, I, I guess so I do. I don't know that, what he. I, I, who's, yeah. the, who's the. Well, we only one? see three. We only. I mean, we only, like you said, we only know who, well, we know who two of them are. We see, we see the third here. He, he, he stabs Brick. So. Who's, who's the fourth? Like, I mean, does, what is Tim Sheridan trying to do? I mean, he. Yeah, it's, like, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty convoluted. What a mess. Um, 
yeah, and obviously Dick Grayson was the first Red X, and Brick was told by this adult Red X that Dick Grayson was his father, and that's not true, and and that was where the angst came from, that Brick believed that that Dick Grayson was his dad, and Dick Grayson was like, you know, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, we take DNA samples of everybody when they they start, and – we would have known, you know, we, that you were my son, and that's just not the case. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it's an opportunity squandered. Here's the, th- the problem with it. I, we didn't get enough context on who, who Brick is, out, you know, outside of his uh, identity as, as Red X yeah. to care, you know? Like, why do I care who this kid is? You haven't made me care about him. Like you, you just you and then it. he's killed anyway. the 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 older brick stabs him to kill him, and this is the older brick that yeah, befriended the young not, brick. Like what's yeah, that he's about? not necessarily he's not necessarily dead. You're right. He does get stabbed, and and you know they they are rushing him to the hospital or what have you. But I mean, the whole thing is it's and we said this from the very beginning. If you drag it out too long, it won't work, and and that's. That's, I think, the failure. That's where, you know, you, you mentioned squandering the opportunity. That That's where the opportunity was squandered. You dragged it out too long to the point where, yeah, nobody nobody cares anymore because you haven't given us a reason to care. If you had shortened the mystery and revealed it sooner, then there, you would have had time to develop the character and, and you could even have done it. You could have told the story backwards. You could have told us, okay, here's who it is. And then explain what their motivations are, that sort of thing. Or you could have done it the way you did it and have the the revelations happen way later. But you have to make us care about – like Brick has barely shown up. He's barely (laughs) shown up since the first issue. I know. And if you even do a search for – like a Google search for DC Comics Brick, you get a totally different character. You get this yeah. older character that that like turns into this brick-like monster that I think was a villain, like a Flash villain or something. It's not even this this version of brick. So yeah, I it, I, I think the the failure is too many ideas, not enough time to flesh them out. I mean, we said that with the Teen Titans Academy Future State. Um, issues series where it was it was some really cool ideas but it was so hard to follow because it was so convoluted and now you know this is ending maybe sooner than than tim sheridan would want but again you you didn't you didn't give us enough time to to care about any of these characters um some of them are are pretty interesting (laughs) like like you said they they have a lot of potential but like yeah you didn't if if you wanted to focus on this red X and, and that was the, the idea of the series, Hey, we're going to focus on red X. Then you, you needed to get there sooner. Like I, I keep thinking about the, the couple of issues that starred gorilla Greg and, and that whole thing. And like, why, why, why did you give us that? Cause somebody said, Hey, this doesn't feel like a teen Titans Academy book. You're not focusing on the students. So let me pivot. And focus on the students? No, no, not if you're going to go back to this stuff. Just like t- tell, the, figure out what story you want to tell, and like tell that story. Like actually get to the point where 
you finish that story before you, you know, then start a, a new story. So yeah, this, uh, this brick Pedroso, I mean, he shows up in issue one and then whatever, you know, like, I guess if you yeah. figured it out and you knew it was him, then, you know, kudos to you, but. Yeah. And there's one scene where, uh, and I got it up here where Donna Troy is crying and I can't figure out why she's crying is like, is she like, why is Donna Troy crying? I, I've never, I, I, I don't know why she's crying. Is, is Brick her son? No, she's is, crying. She's, she's crying she... because, because they found the bodies of Cyborg and, and uh, and Beast Boy. And is, is that what it is? Uh, okay. I mean, that's what I would. That's what I would think. Okay. I I just I just everything about like I just I I don't feel any of the character moments. I don't feel any of the emotion in this issue. I don't feel anything. I just everything is empty to me. It's absolutely empty, and it's been this way from the beginning. I just I haven't felt any of the. I'm not connected to the characters. I don't care about the characters. I don't, I just, I don't get it. That Nothing made sense to me. I mean, bear in mind, I, I just want to remind people that if you, if you want to send your kid to Teen Titans Academy, you've got to accept the fact that all the teachers' secret identities are secret. You don't know who they are. You got to call them Mr. Nightwing, Mrs. Starfire, Mrs. Dyberg. And, and by the way, your children have to submit to a DNA sample, whether they want to or not. So, you know, call your lawyer about that. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, the whole thing is so is so ridiculous, and there's there's I don't know why anybody. And once again, this this issue also ends uh, similarly to how Sh you know Shazam number four ended with Shazam telling people, "Wow, you know, you should definitely you know propping up Teen Titans Academy. Teen Titans Academy is a good thing." No, it's not. It's not. It's not a good thing. Uh, I don't see why anybody would want to send their kids to this academy, why anybody would want to send their kids to this school. This is a liability. Your kids are going to get killed. There's no safety. There's there's nothing about this there's this academy that is worth going to. And uh hey, you know, quite frankly, I mean I like this this whole thing is just one <laughs> it's, I wish the story was better, but I mean, I don't care. I mean, Red X is brick and Red X is apparently Nightwing plus two other guys that we don't know who they are and we're supposed to care. And, and I feel, I don't even feel bad that I don't care, but w I should not feel good that a title is canceled. But I fear that if this can title wasn't canceled, we would continue to get Red X stories. So the only way to stop the bleeding is to just bury the corpse. I just, you know, call it a day, kill it, call it a corpse, bury it. And if this series comes back, let it actually be a, a story about an academy and about a school and, and about let's actually get to know the students as opposed to being pirated. If Red X is so compelling a character, let's have a Red X series. But we don't have a Red X series, do we? I wonder why that is. Anyways, I'm being a smart ass bastard. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm confused. You, you say that the school shouldn't exist. You're talking about DNA tests and whatever. But then you're saying bring bring a Teen Titans Academy series back. Which, which well, no, one no, is no. I'm it? just saying. Well, it, it's because it's not been about a school. It hasn't really been. I know, but you just said that you just said that this is a school that shouldn't exist. Well, but no, then you, uh, you, no. you're saying. <laughs> no, I'm just. That's uh, what you said. Well, no, that's no, what you no, said. Fair, fair enough. But uh, fair enough. I mean, it, it, it. 
I didn't mean to say it shouldn't exist. I'm just saying that if you're gonna if you're gonna have to tell a story about a school, get me interested in the students. And and we did have some issues. In fairness to Tim Sheridan, I want, I'll defend him a bit. We had some actual character issues where we got to know the students. Those are his best issues. But then we got sidetracked with his, his awful Shazam series, which had nothing to do with, barely had anything to do with Shazam, for great God's sakes. And then get, get us into the heads of the students. Let's get to know the students. But this this central it's like tim sheridan he, he was trying to get us to know nightwing and starfire their romance donna troy changeling he was he was trying to incorporate the old titans as teachers into a new generation we don't want that we we look at the success of titans united that series titans united which you and i both love we want we want we want donna troy nightwing starfire to be adventurous superheroes in their own right. We don't want them to be teachers at a school. I mean, come on. I mean, this this whole thing was wrongheaded from the beginning. They should be, we should do it like, uh, it, they should do it like Strange Academy where you have, look, Dr. Strange shows up, one, he's a special guest. He shows up to teach the students once in a while. Have new new teachers teaching the uh, the students of, teach, uh, of Titans Academy and then every now and then have a special guest teacher, Nightwing, Changeling, Cyborg. They're the things that you hope to get. Those are the, they'll show up once in a while, but they can't show up all the time. Why? Because they're busy. They're superheroes. They're not actually teachers getting paid by the state. I mean, this is ridiculous. Anyways, I'm, I'm on a soapbox, but. Yeah, you are. You really hate <laughs> this book. Jesus. Well, no, I'm just I, saying, I just, like, this could I be just, so much I disagree. better. I, I I, yeah, I disagree. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having Nightwing and Cyborg and Beast Boy and whatever be the teachers at the school. The thing is, we don't need to, we don't need their stories. We don't need them taking up space in the book. They can be there and show up a panel here or there. But yeah, focus it on the students. I need to learn who the students are so that I care about them. So that if, if you do tell a Red X story down the line, I mean, that would have been the way to do it. Hint at them early on and then totally take it off you know we said if you drag this out too long it's it's going to be terrible you can and I'll, I'll stand corrected like you can take your time to do the reveal but don't beat us over the head with the mystery of it plant the seed and then don't even mention it except maybe a sentence here or there you know every other issue and then you can reveal it a couple years down the line after we get to know these characters, after we get to know these students and we are invested in them and care. Like, I don't care that Brick got stabbed because I hardly got any of Brick in the series. So, yeah, I, I think the failure of this in, in my mind, if there is a failure, is that it's trying to do too many things. There's not enough space to do all the things that he's trying to do. You know, you mentioned the whole thing with Dane and the Shazam series. And then we had the, 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 the plot line with Billy Batson losing his powers. And we have the, yeah, the, the love triangle with Starfire and Batgirl and Barbara Gordon, Barbara Gordon, Batgirl and Nightwing. It's trying to do, it's trying to do too many things. There's not enough room. So the problem may, might be that there wasn't another Teen Titans series where you could do that other stuff, right? If there's another Teen Titans series, I mean, yes, we have Teen Titans United, but that's out of continuity. Give us another Titan series. Just call it Titans, and you, you, that's where you put your Nightwing and your Starfire and tell all their stories, you know, tell the love triangle, whatever else you want to tell. And in the pages of Teen Titans Academy, it should be focused just on these kids. 
And and maybe the other mistake might have been, why did you give us such a huge cast of kids? Give us like, yeah, obviously the school's going to have more than four or five kids, but just focus on four or five of them, at least for the first year or so. So we really get to know those four or five kids and we and we can care about them. And then you move on. I mean, we had Gotham Academy, right? How many issues did that go? Do you know? By Carl. Uh, I think it went. Was it 23 issues? I actually have. I, I got the whole series, uh, but but and, and admittedly, it, it never sold all that well. But it was, uh, but I never, I but never it was focused on the kids. This. Exactly. And I, I never, and in fairness, maybe this even, for all I know, maybe this Teen Titans Academy, because it's Teen Titans, maybe it even sells, sold better. I don't know. But, uh, you know, but I never, I never had a complaint about really the narrative like I did, like the disjointed narrative, like I think exists with Teen Titans Academy here. You well, because it wasn't it, Teen Titans Academy, like you said, this was, yeah. it should have just been called Red X. It was Red X. That's what the well, series that, was. That's really what it was. And you know what? As a Red X story, maybe if he had just focused on the Red X mystery, that would have been so much. It would have been so much more interesting, and people would have. I could have gotten invested behind it, and and I would, because in that way, it's not. It's. I would not be legitimate in my criticism saying it's too much Red X if it's called a Red X comic. Yeah. And maybe it would yeah. be a new character that we could get behind and. And and the red X, the mystery of Red X, a twelve issue mystery of Red X series. Like, I mean, now and and I gotta say, you have no idea how much that took me out of the story and how much that annoyed me. That that one comment by the one the one student whose name, again, I forget because we haven't seen him all that much, saying that there's the fourth Red X, the fourth. I I thought there like you. I thought there was only three. Yeah. <laughs> and, no, but yeah. no, but you have no idea how much that annoys me. And I, when there's nothing worse that, you know, I've got no problem. Like you've corrected me at times when I, when I massively screw up and if I screw up, Hey man, I, I screwed up. I misread something. So be it. But I don't like being made a fool of as a reader or I feel like if, you know, when I feel like I've missed something and, and I've, I've read it as much as I have. And I try to, you know, I try to defend this cause I'm a DC lover and I want to, I want to defend DC and I try as I might, I can't defend this series. This has just been a, a convoluted mess. I, I want to get behind this, but I can't. I don't want Red X moving forward. To me, everything, when you have a, to me, it's a house of cards. When you have a weak foundation, it's hard to build on that because you're, you're always, you're always looking to rebuild the foundation. And when you're constantly rebuilding the foundation, people get tired of it. And in order to rebuild Red X, people are going to have to, they're going to have to redo this origin. There's gonna be a, there's gonna to have to be a new writer in the future that comes forward that redoes this, yeah, right? Or, or they just I think the, I wouldn't necessarily say they have to start over or rebuild it, but I guarantee you, like if we sat down, had some drinks with Tim Sheridan, and he and he explained what he was doing to us, we I bet we'd love it. Again, I go back to the thing is I think his ideas are too big for the space. You know, he comes from animation; it's easier to to tell stories when you you know you're doing live action or you're doing animation where fair enough you know it's not just a static image of you know for 20 pages um it's it's you know easier and i think his ideas were were just too big um so maybe you you point the the finger at that or hey editorial should have taken a little bit of a stronger hand and go you had you just don't have enough space to do all this stuff Foc- focus just on the kids or focus just on red x yeah. and it would have been more successful cuz I, I i wanted this to be good i was so excited when they announced it 
And yeah. it, it was just, it, it didn't land, I think, because again, there wasn't enough real estate for all the big ideas that he had. I, I, right. And, and I want to be clear. And, and I think, I think it goes without saying, I mean, look, I, I come at this from the, I'm not a writer. I'm not a, I don't come from Adam. I'm just, I'm just a reader. I'm a lifelong reader of DC comics. So my bias is I just come at this from a reader of comic books. So I, maybe he's got a, his intention. He's got a background in animation. That's all well and good. And, and I realize, and I, you know, I've, I've been surrounded by people like yourself and, 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 and Trevor, Dark Knight Nation, you know, uh, like Trevor Lankiewicz there, you know, I mean, you guys got a background maybe in writing or, you know, you're, you know, you know what the intentions were, but the bottom line is, is that as a comic book reader, this just, this was a miss. This was a miss. Like whatever your intentions were coming from animation, I respect that. I do. I mean, I, you can write circles around me. I'm not a writer, but as a reader, I just want to be entertained and, and this was a miss for me. Like I, I didn't, I don't see, I don't know why I'm supposed to care about Red X. And, and it was a miss for me. And that's just, you know, and I hate to say that, but, you know, I call it like I see them. And, and I know you and I, you know, we, we, we love DC comics and we, you know, but sometimes it's like, you know, it's like, there's only so much I can say to maybe sugarcoat my feelings on something. And this Teen Titans Academy, man, ooh, this from the, you know, we've had a we had a couple of good character driven issues where we got to know the students that I really enjoyed, but then we get we get sidetrack we get this sidetrack with Shazam and Teddy for Black Adam, with with the Black Adam movie coming out and editorial approved, uh, a divergent character of Black Adam called Teddy in Teen Titans Academy. This is atrocious. Like this this is this I was I didn't mind I didn't mind that. This was thought a miss for me. Like, this is not doing the character any favors. You got a black out of movie coming out, and you're approving this. Like, I'm. This is a huge miss. When w- instead of this, we got a black out of movie coming out, and and you're allowing a divergent. Uh, I didn't uh, think there was anything wrong with. I thought that was fun. First of all, so you know, it might not have landed for you, but it, it didn't bother wow. me at all. It's, I, I and just say, and maybe and may, maybe most importantly. What makes you think that anybody who's going to go see The Rock play Black Adam gives a crap about any of these comics? Well, you're, you're it's right. Been shown time and time, yeah. You're right. Time no, and time I, I again. Agree with you there. Nobody, nobody, and nobody who goes and sees that and falls in love with the Black Adam character and decides they want to read comics is going to go, okay, let me pick up this Teen Titans Academy and, book where Black Adam showed up. No, they're well, going to go buy the Black Adam or Shazam well, books. My counterpoint to your comment, though, Jace, is that I mean, why? And God forbid, should ever should it occur to any of them to pick up a Black Adam comic, and they and they happen to come across this storyline, they never will again, because I mean, and this is this is part of my, and this is a larger, this is a topic for another day, but it just seems to me that maybe a little bit of synchronicity between. A little bit of synchronicity between the, the the movies and the comic books in terms of consistency of characterization might be something that they might want to think about. But again, that's a topic for another day. But Marvel doesn't I'm venting, even do I'm that. Venting. I'm sorry. Yeah, Marvel doesn't even do that. They don't care. Disney yeah. doesn't care. Warner Brothers doesn't care. AT and T doesn't care. It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that there won't be a Black Adam series coming that will be much more similar to what you see on the big screen when it comes closer to the date. I don't think they were thinking at all about the Black Adam movie when Tim Sheridan pitched his idea for this. And again, I I thought that was one of the more fun aspects of it, the Shazam. I enjoyed the Shazam 4 issue. 
I enjoyed this Shazam. And I, I thought actually that black, I'll tell you, I, I enjoyed that version of black Adam, the Teddy version, as you call it. Yeah. I enjoyed that version of black Adam more than the black Adam. <laughs> that's what, from that's Brian what Tim Michael Sheridan Bendis. calls him is Teddy. That's his name. Teddy, the young black yeah, Adam. And I'm Teddy. Fine. I, I'm, I think it's funny. Uh, and I enjoy it more than the version of black Adam we got from oh. Brian Michael Bendis <laughs> in justice league. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, all right, let's move on. We've talked more than enough about Teen Titans Academy for a, a book that Rock, <laughs> for a book that Rocky can't stand. Uh, all right, so Harley Quinn number twelve, Bad Math Part Two, from writer Stephanie Phillips, Riley Rosmo on art, Yvonne Placencia on colors, and World Design on letters. Uh, this is the book I say I'm gonna at some point I'm gonna stop reading, and yet I keep reading it. Um, this was a lot of fun. Spoiler alert, but. Obviously, Harley Quinn stops the train, uh, or actually, she she stops the train by allowing it to blow up or having it blow up early. Saves Kevin, saves Gotham City, and then um, gets to take out Creepsake, as she calls him, <laughs> along with her along with her support group. And uh, it's just a feel good. It, Harley Quinn has really become a feel good story, which you know that. I credit Stephanie Phillips a lot for that and the Riley Rosmo art whose art I've been critical of at times because I, I don't really care for the style, but it's definitely growing on me. And I do feel like he's a little less exaggerated and, and kind of out there with his art. Uh, I feel like he's dialed it back a little bit. on the Harley I'm Quinn glad series. you said that Jace, because I, I thought maybe it was just me, but I, I actually thought his art's gotten better over the, over the course of the issues, like a more, a little bit. Yeah. More I wouldn't clear. say, yeah, I wouldn't say, Better because I don't think his art's necessarily bad in the first place. I just think he's he's honing in on a on a style that's a little bit more traditional, which works for this book as opposed to like when he drew Martian Manhunter and his art was really out there and psychedelic, which worked for the Martian Manhunter series that Steve Orlando wrote because Martian Manhunter was a is an alien, a shape shifting alien, so it yeah. could be like kind of wild and crazy. But you know, going back to my point of this being like a feel good emotional book that really in a lot of ways is kind of channeling the feeling of that, that support group that Harley Quinn, that Stephanie Phillips has had Harley Quinn hosting in the, in the series. It needs a little bit, I think more grounded looking, more traditional type of art. And so, you know, credit to Riley Rosmo for recognizing that and, and, you know, dialing back on kind of the, the more wild and, and crazy exaggeration that he puts into his art sometimes. So I, I'm, I'm enjoying this as much as I've ever enjoyed a Harley Quinn book, which, you know, when I stop to think about it, doesn't surprise me at all because I'm a huge fan of Stephanie Phillips. And I think she's a, a perfect person to write Harley Quinn because I, you know, if you haven't ever listened to any of the interviews we've done with Stephanie, when she's come on, I encourage you to go back and listen to those. She's a very, diverse and eclectic person in terms of her interests, you know, playing ice hockey, Muay Thai fighter, um, you know, having taught history and whatnot, um, writing comics. I mean, she's, she's definitely well-rounded and in a lot of ways that mirrors Harley, you know, Harley's got her whole zany former uh, supervillain side now hero, uh, but has, you know, is a very brilliant um, psychologist, psychiatrist, you know, back in the day has a gymnast, gymnastics background and whatnot. So, you know, she's a lot of people don't think of her that way. They just think of her as this, you know, um, joker sidekick with a, a Brooklyn accent. And she's, she's so much more than that. And I think Stephanie really brings that out. 
So uh, yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying Har- this more than I've ever have. Th- this issue made me want to keep reading Harley, um, whereas that's not hasn't been the case for every issue. While I think they've all been good, again I go back to the fact that most of the time Harley Quinn, I'm kind of you know it's too zany, it's too wacky, it's just not for me. But yet when it's the the type of series that lean into her intelligence, like the Joker Harley criminal sanity from Cami Garcia, or uh, even in the Sean Gordon Murphy verse, where we had the uh, the Harley Quinn White Knight series that Katana Collins wrote, like those are the versions of Harley that I, I typically like, where the zaniness is almost completely removed, um, and it leans into the more cerebral aspect of her. Well, Stephanie's bringing in some humor, which I do enjoy humor in my comics, but she's she's also uh, bringing in the intelligence, but she's marrying that together with this. Uh, this very empathetic Harley who really is like hard on her sleeve, trying to help out her fellow uh, former clowns uh, that were Joker henchmen during the the Joker war and whatnot. So uh, yeah, I think this is really good. The art, as I said, great. And it was fun to see Creepsake about to get his comeuppance. I'll say, I, I think this is the first appearance of a new character that apparently we just found find out in this issue that ha- has been kind of the one backing Creepsake all along, and her name is The Verdict. So we'll have to wait and see how uh, how it all plays out in the final dispensation of uh, Creepsake, as Harley calls him, next issue. But uh, yeah, I guess speculator alert, as Rocky likes to say, if you uh, want to grab the first appearance of, uh, of The Verdict here. What do you th- what do you think of the latest issue of Harley? Yeah, yeah, you know what? I don't have much to add to be honest. I mean, it's uh, I I've noticed, or at least I I thought I did, but I I always I always find myself questioning my my sort of my artistic eye because I don't pretend to have like a great artistic eye with with comics. Uh, I have my preferences, but I I I don't often I I don't. Um, I always feel that one of my uh, deficiencies as a reviewer is my ability to articulate my what I observe with different artistic styles, and so I I I respect and I and I envy people like yourself, Chase, who 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 are have a better ability to articulate artistic differences of style and tone and and line work and all that other stuff. And I'm and I'm learning as I go as I review more comic books, uh, but I've I've noticed that that uh, Riley Rosmo's art has grown on me. And, and frankly, I actually find that the story, I actually, I, I really appreciate the fact that it's the same artist with Stephanie Phillips as this story is being told, because I think it, it, it it's really helpful because especially with Kevin and, and all the, and all the, the, the really strange eclectic group of characters, we got a really odd group of oddball characters with Stephanie Phillips here, a very, very oddball group of characters. And it would not work. Dare I say, I don't think it would work if we suddenly got an artistics change in the middle of an, of the middle of an issue, because these, these are, these are, these are characters that are so odd looking that if we suddenly, like, I actually wonder how would, uh, Ivan Reese draw Kevin? How would Ivan Reese draw these other eclectic characters? Because, I, Riley Rosmo has, has such a stylistic approach to his art that 
it actually makes me wonder what they're going to look like if, if we ever see them drawn by another artist. It's going to be very interesting to see. But in any event, it really, I think it enhances the narrative. And I think that, I think what I fear has happened maybe that because you hear all these things about DC sales and what have you, I do think that, especially with the verdict here, you know, this revelation, I, I think this verdict here has a lot of potential as a character as being a, an arch nemesis for Harley Quinn moving forward. And I really hope she sticks because I think she's an interesting looking character. She's drawn by Riley Rosmo. And I, I don't mean that as, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but Riley Rosmo, when you think about it, he's got a very exaggerated sort of very stylistic way of drawing characters. So when you take a more, can you imagine a Mikhail Shannon drawing the verdict or drawing the character of Kevin or draw, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how a different style would, would look. That's, that's what sort of fascinates me about this. And the other thing is I like the story. I like the story here. I think it's clear to me that Stephanie Phillips had, she's got a, she's got a direction where she wanted to take these characters. I like her focus with, with Harley about Harley taking a more of a psychological element. Uh, what, what her approach to Harley Quinn where where it really has stood out for me is how she's incorporated Harley Quinn, Doctor Harleen Quinzel's psychological approach to people. You see that expressed through her her interpretation and her iteration of Harley Quinn, and I like that. We've seen that from the beginning, even even though this this title was sort of pirated and almost hijacked by the Fear State storyline that she was sort of forced to sort of shoehorn her storyline into i think she did a reasonably good job of that and i think that in the long run i think that these characters that she's introduced again speculator alert guys speculator alert uh these are characters that were that i think are going to become more famous in the future and everyone's going to be pointing back to their first appearances because stephanie phillips introduced them and and got people lighted the fire of the potential potential that these characters had. So, uh, you know, again, kudos to Stephanie Phillips because I think that, you know, this is one of those slow burns that the appreciation of these characters might not happen now when, as these as these characters are coming to the forefront now. But we're gonna see we're gonna see it pay dividends moving into the future. Yeah, I'm particularly fond of Anne. Big. <laughs> yeah. Giant, broad-shouldered woman who's kicking butt. She's uh, she's my favorite. Yeah. Uh, okay, this is a this potentially could be a big a big book uh, in terms of consequences for the DC universe. It's Robin number eleven. Joshua Williams is the writer. Gleb Melnikoff on art. Luis Guerrero on colors, and Troy Petrie on letters. What'd you think, Rock? Oh man, uh, so much happened in this issue. Uh, <laughs> wow, uh, I, you know, Joshua Williamson. You know, just we should maybe talk a little bit about Joshua Williamson. Or he's he's been giving a lot of interviews lately about the about the upcoming Dark Crisis, about what's what's happening for the DC universe, and about uh, all all the plans and the machinations that they have coming forward with the death of the Justice League. And you know, to be clear here, the death of the Justice League moving forward, that's just one very 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 small part of a of a one more of a massive storyline. And the events taking place in Robin and, and Deathstroke Incorporated, also written by Joshua Williamson that we're going to be reviewing uh, this week. Uh, I mean, 
all this is all this is sort of it's leading to a head and it's there's a lot happening here in the pages of Robin and and I want to say this for those people who love uh Green Arrow who love um don't just love Green Arrow but love the um love Lady Shiva who love all the great fighters because you know what I love about this issue Lady Shiva shows up Connor Hawk I I listen to a uh, I listen to a YouTube channel. I mean Chuck Dixon has his own YouTube channel and leaving aside the whole comic book culture nonsense and, and culture comic book culture war a little bit. Chuck Dixon talks talks to, talked about uh he talked about an old storyline that he did uh back in the day where he had Green Arrow when he had Connor Hawk and and uh you know and and Lady Shiva and all, all the other who is the best fighter in the DC universe. Lady Shiva shows up here and what I really love about this issue is that we actually get, you know, we, we, we get everything. Everything sort of comes to a head. We get, we get Raza Gall show is in this issue from last issue. Talia, Lady Talia shows up that the League of Lazarus and, and the, and the League of, the League of Lazarus and the League of Assassins have been now merged. They're now called the Shadows. And we have, uh, we've got, uh, Damien. Along with uh, Flatline, their romance sort of continues. We got Flatline, Damien, and Connor Hawk go. You know they take off and they 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 look to to apprehend Masker Tusk, and they they apprehend him. Meanwhile, we got Respawn and Rose. They they you know Respawn reveals his identity to Rose, and we don't know who it is, but I suspect it. We might know be who a- it is. Well, we might we suspect it might be a family member that's related to Rose. Yeah, it's yeah. Grant. It's gotta right, be. it's Grant. That's right. But 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 it's not revealed here. It's maybe teased in the issue of Deathstroke Incorporated that we'll be reviewing in this particular episode. And so wow, so much is happening here. Um uh we, we it's revealed that you know, Jace, you and I have sort of talked for the last year. We've talked about how the Lazarus pits uh you know, we've got Lazarus Resin. We see everybody is being re- resurrected in the DC universe, but in all these comic books, Task Force X, Suicide Squad, Robin, Lazarus, Lazarus Resin seems to be everywhere. It seems to be the new drug of choice. Don't worry if you get killed in the DC universe. Have a little, have a Lazarus pill and everything will be okay. You'll come back to life. It's like, we, you and I were worried. We talked about, we don't want this to be used sort of like in the X-Men universe over in Marvel where where death doesn't mean anything anymore, where you can just resurrect. Well, that's addressed here. Talia Agal reveals in this issue that she has, they have, you know, her and the shadows, the, the, this merging of the League of Lazarus and the League of Assassins, they've, they've located all of the other Lazarus pits around the world and they've, they've gotten control of them again. So, and, and this is interesting because this is going to play into plot lines in Task Force Z, where Lazarus Resin is used to resurrect various various parties and various members of, of task force X and Oh, just a quick silent. I got to kiss my daughter. Good night. Good night. <laughs> but anyways, so much has happened here. And I, I, I was particularly, uh, you know, there, there's a great scene where Rose confronts who, who respawn is, and it might be grant. Like you say, it likely is. Uh, I love that lady Shiva shows up and, Connor Hawk 
says to her, why weren't you in the tournament? And she said, because I knew you would win. So how do you interpret Lady Shiva's comments? Do you you interpret Lady Shiva's comments as saying, when she says, because I knew you'd win, does Lady Shiva actually think that Connor Hawk could defeat her in combat? I don't think that. I don't think Lady Shiva could defeat Connor Hawk, but that's just me. What do you think? What do other people think about that? Uh, I love the art here by Glove Melnikov. Um, I thought it was just, just fantastic art. I love how Lady Shiva looks. She looks a little bit younger than how I normally picture her here, but again, the art here just really, it, it picks up, it, it really pops off the page. The other members of the, the people that showed up for the tournament, they've now joined the League of Shadow, or the I guess the Shadows now. It's not called the League of, it's called the Shadows. And and Tali El Gal makes a proposal to all of them, uh, saying, you know, saying, you know, join me or you're going to cons- be cons- considered my enemy. And, you know, just great stuff. We, If you're a fan of the romance between Flatline and Damien, you're going to be happy. Damien's happier. If you're a fan of Alfred Pennyworth, you're going to be happy because at the end of this, Damien has some Lazarus resin in his hand and there's a suggestion that he might resurrect Alfred. I mean, that's a huge revelation. I mean, all there's so much in this issue, in this one issue. You know, it's funny how we sort of complain about decompression, how things are dragged on. And yet every now and then I look at an issue like this, there is so much crammed into this one issue. I'm thinking, good Lord. I mean, we've had 11 issues and we get so much crammed in one issue. Anyways, this is the payoff for me. I, I'm thank you, Joshua Williamson. When I think of how negative I was toward Joshua Williamson during his flash run, I'm just so happy. I'm, I'm happy with his Justice League incarnate, his Robin, his Deathstroke Incorporated seems to be picking up in terms of where Deathstroke is going, and even this with Rose and and the revelation of who Respawn might be. I mean, so much, so much to be happy for. I encourage everybody to pick this up and draw their own conclusions and uh, and and revelations and excitements and have fun with this this is a good time to be a robin fan robin deathstroke incorporated justice league incarnate i think these are good titles to pick up and have fun with man i uh what do you think of this issue jace well um you might have a chance to apologize to joshua wimson uh in person he should be on the show next month so <laughs> Uh, I will happily apologize to him. We'll we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Still getting that, still getting that set up. So stay tuned for that, everybody. Um, Yeah, there is a lot that went down in this issue. Uh, I think I read this before I read uh, Deathstroke. So it wasn't until I read Deathstroke where I, I, it really kind of hit me. And I've thought this before, but I don't know if, if I've mentioned it on the show, but yeah, the fact that Joshua Williamson, is, he's writing Justice League Incarnate, did an Infinite Frontier before that. He's writing Robin. He's writing Deathstroke. He gets to, in a way, create his own continuity between these titles because he's writing so much stuff at DC right now. He can throw stuff in one comic and have it pay off in another. Um, so other than the reveal of Respawn to Rose, I immediately thought, well, that's Grant. Uh, there's all this Lazarus resin in DCU, which, you know, that all that whole thing ties in with Task Force Z that we're going to talk about in a few minutes as well uh, with what's going on there. And and it seems like based on the events of this issue with um, 
Ra's al Ghul and Talia basically getting control and, uh, you know, Ra's mother here will no longer be able to manufacture Lazarus resin. Uh, all the Lazarus pits are back under control of Ra's. And so hopefully that worry that we had uh, will kind of go away. And we've even seen that to some extent in Task Force Z, like I said, where um, all of a sudden the Lazarus resin is harder to get a hold of. So it's great to see all that continuity and all that stuff sort of paying off. But that does make me think, okay, well, that's why it's Grant, why Respawn is Grant, because, you know, his costume does. And it, right away, when he first showed up, we thought, well, that looks kind of like a Deathstroke costume, but it does have some ver similarities with, with Ravager's costume, which is a derivative of, uh, of Deathstroke's costume as well. So it makes a lot of sense. And then obviously the reaction that Ravager has that Rose Wilson has of seeing whoever this is. Well, yeah, it's because it's her, her brother. So as much as the other stuff was kind of cool, what I cared about was, yeah, it, Grant is probably back. How's that going to affect Slade Wilson, Deathstroke in the long run? But more importantly than that, the one thing I cared about more than anything in this issue was the final page and seeing Alfred's tombstone. I've been waiting for Alfred to come back pretty much since the moment he died. That's all I really care about that this issue hints that Alfred Pennyworth is going to be coming back. That's what needs to happen. Cause you know, I've said, well, dark crisis, it's, it's another crisis. It, it could be a reset. It could be a soft reboot. It could be all kinds of things. It could be, could be. Um, but at the end of the day, I got, I got to think regardless of what happens in dark crisis, make sure you bring back Alfred. We might have it happen even before, uh, even before dark crisis gets here, you know, which would be really interesting, right? Like Alfred comes back and Bruce is dead. You know, that could yeah. be something interesting. There could be some interesting stories to tell uh, from that perspective as well. Uh, the art from Gleb Melnikoff, I, I echo your sentiments. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, he's only gotten better. Uh, and not necessarily in terms of line work, although I think his line work has gotten a little tighter uh, since he started. But I think his uh, his sense of storytelling has gotten better. He, he does a lot more close-ups on faces, his... Um, you know, kind of those talking headshots, which can be kind of boring at times. And you have to make sure you keep the, the reader's eye engaged, move the camera around, switch up the angles, whether you're looking up at somebody or looking down or, or what have you. Uh, he's improved on that by leaps and bounds since his, um, since his early issues and his early issues were great. So he, I think he's on the verge of being a, a, a star, a name that people will know. Uh, all right. Up next, uh, another book where the storyline seems to be coming together. So I'm very curious Rocky's thoughts on this one. <clears throat> it's Aquaman Green Arrow Deep Target number five from writer Brandon Thomas. Ronan Cliquet is the artist. Ulysses Ariola on colors. Josh Reed on letters. Uh, I'll talk about the art first. It's fantastic. It's been fantastic throughout. Uh, it's been very consistent, both in terms of line work and color. Uh, the last issue sort of ended on a cliffhanger where... <laughs> This uh, this general uh, has come to rescue, which seems so strange, right? Because uh, they've been after Aquaman, who's in the body of Green Arrow, and Green Arrow is Aquaman. It's been that freaky freaky Friday switch up from the start, and so to see him show up, this reptilian general-looking guy, to see him show up and rescue, and uh, at least offer to rescue. Uh, Aquaman and Green Arrow kind of th throws you for a loop. And then as Aquaman and Green Arrow are, are you know, they're, 
why why are they in a world where everybody is kind of a half dinosaur half human hybrid just like general anderton and if it has to do with evolution because things were changed in the past and what have you then why aren't green arrow and aquaman also half reptilian and half human so that's all explained in the issue and and the way it's explained actually makes sense um and so i, I really enjoyed this issue i love that the story started to come together if I have any nitpick, and it's it's a minor one, it's that even though General Anderson doesn't have a choice but to team up with Aquaman and Green Arrow to to fix the problems that have happened, and it's a it's a little Jurassic Park when you talk about the like the catalyst of the problems. The characterization for Anderton it really flips. It really flips. Like he's so maniacal and Machiavellian in the first, you know, four issues or what have you. And then all of a sudden his side's losing. Scorpius is losing his, um, his organization that he has dreamt of controlling the world and steering it towards greatness or whatever his crazy ideas are. Um, he's been so focused on that. And like I said, so maniacal and now, okay, Scorpius has fallen apart. And now he, he just seems like a kindler, gentler General Anderton, so much so that he almost doesn't seem like the same person. So it's a little bit too much of a heel turn for me. Um, but again, it's a minor nitpick because I, I'll, I'll take it in terms of the story. It's, re it's really, the story's really fun. Um, as far as what I was saying about the whole Jurassic thing is, yeah, so uh, once Aquaman and Green Arrow escaped, the moon base of Scorpius last issue, Anderton uh, called for the tabula rasa, which means clean slate in Latin. He called for that protocol, which basically was, hey, these guys escaped. Uh, they got out of, our, out of our control. They might be able to stop us from taking over the world, basically. So what tabula rasa is, it's a protocol where all the members of Scorpius go back in time, as far back in time as they can, to predetermined locations that are safe in caves or, or or places that are protected from dinosaurs, and they and these certain events, these certain times that they go back to, are very important. They all have specific orders to undertake, so that the the future history will unfold in such a way that Scorpius will be in charge in the future. But one of the guys that uh, is in charge of like sending people back to where they're supposed to. He has some, he has a little bit of a change of heart. He doesn't think that tabula rasa is a good idea. And so rather than having everybody go back to places that are safe, that materialize in the past, like in the middle of a pack of dinosaurs or uh, in a place where they're going to fall into a volcano. And so they don't get to do the things that they're supposed to do at the predetermined times they're supposed to do them, which then, leads to a, a timeline where people become like dinosaur human hybrids. And that's the mess that now needs to go, go back and be cleaned up. So general Anderson's going to team up with green arrow and Aquaman, and they're going to go back to a different time and stop Scorpius before they start mucking with the timeline. So it's a little bit of a convoluted story, but you know, time travel stories always are, but it's great art and it's a lot of fun. And even though Anderton is, like I said, the characterization is a bit of a big shift for me, almost unbelievingly so. Uh, 
it's a minor nitpick. Uh, I'll take it because this is a really fun story. So, uh, what did you think, Rock? Yeah, I, I don't got I don't got much to add here. I like I said, I this was uh, just to show my my interest in, in this overall storyline. This is such a deviation, and this is so completely out of whack from what I expected to be a DC comic. I I just I, I'm still at the point where I'm. This was the last this. Out of all the preview copies that I read, I read this last because I was that I'm just not interested in it. I've not been interested in this storyline from the beginning because I'm just I'm not interested in the story because it has to do with Green Arrow and, and Aquaman and it deals with the divergent timeline where their histories are mixed up and uh, because they're generally not my favorite characters. I'm not that that's why but but I agree with you as a credit to Brandon Thomas the writer this is a fun story this is fun I'll I'll, I'll grant you that I'll, so I I can't disagree with you I I'm not disagreeing with you so I do recommend that people can read this story and enjoy it, it it's fun uh, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit you know it seems odd to me. Silly. But it, it's it, it, it's it's just so off to me that right now I'm so invested in because I'm reading all the other DC comics. I'm just not as interested in this story as the rest of them. You know, yeah. this is no, better than. You. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like so, because this yeah. seems such off the beaten path. So like, there's there's nothing connecting this story to Justice League Incarnate or like a, 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 the crisis or the upcoming event. Why does this story exist? I have no idea why this story exists, but but is it fun? Sure, it's fun. I mean, it'll it'll be it'll be, it'll read good as a trade, and it's and it's fun and it's adventurous. It's just a really odd choice for a story of all the stories they could have told. I, I suppose this is one of them, but uh, uh, yeah, but I I I don't really have much to add other than what you said. It's it's a fun story and. Um, you know, you know, kudos to Brandon Thomas to, you know, taking characters that, you know, Arthur, I don't know. It's almost as if because Connor Hawk is getting a lot of love in Robin and Jackson Hyde's getting a lot of lo love in Aquaman the Becoming. So you got to take Arthur Curry and Oliver Queen and put them in their own comic book and maybe and then have this really, really odd, crazy story, time travel story with them in it. Oh, OK, it's just I. I personally, Brandon Thomas is a great enough writer. I would have preferred a, a story more in the actual mainstream DC universe as opposed to this myself. But, you know, it's a good enough story. It's just, this is really, I get a sense that this is really playing it safe. Let's create a story well, where it's, there's it, nothing at stake. It's divergent. It's It, it involves a completely different storyline, a completely different timeline. So do whatever you want. And it's just safe. It's a very safe story, but. Well, we know that we got the Daniel Warren Johnson Jurassic League where yeah. it's the Justice League is dinosaurs. So all I can yeah. think is maybe this is leading to that. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, we'll probably be reading that going, why did they do this? So yeah. I guess we'll have, yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Anyway, let's move on to a book that you will uh, want to talk about because it does tie in, as we said. King Deathstroke. It's Deathstroke Incorporated number six. Joshua Williamson is the writer. Paolo pa Pantolina is the artist. Romilo Fajardo on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, I never thought about how much Howard Porter's current style looks like uh, Paolo 
Pantalina, but it really does. Baby Pantalina is not quite as wild and kinetic. Uh, maybe his pencil lines are a little tighter, but uh, he's a great he's a great choice if you're gonna have somebody fill in for Howard Porter. Um, Destro gets his wish. He's he's king of the villains. He gives uh, he has a great conversation with Black Canary where he explains his motivations. That all makes sense. We finally understand why it's called Deathstroke Incorporated. This guy's going to go around and recruit all the villains. He's going to be king villain, uh, and he's going to use villains to try to make the world a, a better place in a way. But they're still going to get theirs. You know, why can't they get rich doing it? Um, but the best part about the whole series is the last page, or the whole uh, issue rather, is the last page where we see that um, Ravager and Respawn are saying uh, every once in a while a Deathstroke goes a little nuts and he needs his family to pull him back from the edge. And so, yeah, he, again, a hint that Respawn is uh, is Grant and it's going to take Rose Wilson and Grant Wilson to pull Slade Wilson back from, from the edge. So, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of forward momentum in the story, but what we got really worked and it explained why it's called Deathstroke Incorporated and it's Slade being Slade. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it plays out from here. What'd you think? Well, I thought uh, I'll be a little bit more critical of it than, than you. Uh, first of all, a full compliment. I think this is probably going to be one of the best covers of the week, possibly, possibly one of the best covers of the month. Uh, certainly maybe a contender for top 10 for the year. This is a fantastic cover, cover A. Just it's 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 absolutely gorgeous, you know. It looks like a King Deathstroke. Uh, we finally get in this issue some explanation, or at least building on from last issue in terms of why this title is called Deathstroke Incorporated. He basically takes over the Secret Society of Supervillains, and uh, Slade Wilson's first order is to tell all his other villains to kill Black Canary. Uh, it appears to be all misdirection. Slade seems to think he knows that Black Canary will escape. And then he explains to Black Canary that uh, that he's always struggled between whether or not to be a good guy or a bad guy, and whether or not just to retire and maybe just deal with his family and be a, be a father, be a, you know work on being family. But none of that's worked out for him. So he decides that he's going to lead a secret society of supervillains uh, called Deathstroke Incorporated. That he's found his calling now, and and that's what he's decided as as if somehow he's not a complete devious genocidal maniac villain. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I mean this, I think this is a, this is one dimensional characterization at its best. And I know that I gave a lot of compliments to Williamson, but this is, this is Slade Wilson deciding to be flat out super villain. You, you don't work with the world's top secret villains, the best secret villains and purport to lead them purport to join me or I'll kill you. That's what he says to all the super villains at the end. Join me or I'll kill you. Join me or die. Really Slade? So you're going to lead all the supervillains and what? Tell them to do what? Create a better world? Give me a break. That's not. That's nonsense. That's total horseshit. I don't believe that for a second. He's straight up villain. That's what he is. This isn't about balance. He refers to Libra about, you know, this about, you know, Libra had it right about balance. This is about balance in my life. No, Slade Wilson's full of shit here. And I, I don't know if it's just either, uh, in my view, bad writing on Williamson part or... What is what? What's the game that, that Slade Wilson has to play? I know this. I know that Slade Wilson has a huge role to play. It's been hinted at very strongly in interviews with Joshua Williamson. I'm going into the Dark Crisis, 
in, into the summer event, Slade Wilson controlling uh, being ahead of all the supervillains on uh, on on Earth Zero, which is what Slade Wilson is now. He's Deathstroke Incorporated. This guy controls it all. He's more powerful, arguably, than Lex Luthor than everyone else. He's the lead. He he heads all the supervillains going in. So I'm sure that's going to be very helpful if he sides with the heroes going against the the Great Darkness. So I so I can see that, but. At the same time, I don't see for a second how any supervillain in their right mind would want to side with Deathstroke on this. And what what power does Deathstroke have? He controls a bunch of money. He controls the calculator and Libra controlled, had all this power, had all this access to financial power, and they control the supervillain network on the planet. And now Deathstroke, apparently Slade has access to all of that for reasons which go unexplained. Apparently, if you kill, if you shoot calculator in the head, you have access to all his bank accounts. That makes no sense. Apparently, if you, apparently, if you kill Libra, have Libra dies, you can. I mean, none of this makes any sense to me. This is very, very forced, very, very convenient. This doesn't. It to me, this lacks a significant amount of verisimilitude. But I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna buy it because I like the fact that Deathstroke is the leader of all the supervillains. I like Deathstroke as a bad guy, so I'm gonna buy it. Don't get me wrong. I'm buying all of it. I, I choose to accept it. But we got here in a very sloppy fashion, a very convoluted. Uh, in, in not, it's not even convoluted. It's just far too convenient in a very one-dimensional, oh, I calculator controlled everything. Calculator controlled all this. Calculator had all these, I, kill, I shoot calculator in the head, just like Destro kills another guy, kills another villain at the end and defies him, shoots him in the head to show his, he's the alpha male of the supervillains. Okay, ooh, we gotta we gotta fear Deathstroke. This feels forced. This doesn't feel earned. It really doesn't feel earned to me. I'm sorry, but he doesn't hold a candle to Lex Luthor. He doesn't hold a candle to Darkseid. He doesn't hold a. I'm sorry, he just doesn't. He's been he's been an anti-hero too long and a hero at times for me to suddenly. I don't I don't buy it. Him just coming in. And even his relationship with Black Canary, he's going to come in, he's going to try, he's he's playing both sides of the fence. He lets Black Canary escape or he he, he sort of like, he, he just seems to me to be, everything seems too convenient, too forced here. This doesn't work for me. I, I don't buy it, but I know that a lot of people are loving this series and I get it because, you know, Deathstroke is so powerful, he's so cool that all the supervillains now, they're going to like side with him or they're going to fear that. They're, he's going to kill him. I'm sorry. I just don't buy that for a second. And frankly, any supervillain that worries about Deathstroke isn't, isn't a supervillain worth investing in. I'm sorry. It just isn't. I'm not buying this for a second. Deathstroke Incorporated, I much preferred the Secret Society of Supervillains under Libra. Made more sense to me. I much prefer the Legion of Doom. That 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 feels has more gravitas to me than this. Uh, so this doesn't work for me. This is the one thing that doesn't work for me for a second, that all the supervillains of the DC universe are now going to be headed by Deathstroke. I'm sorry, that really, I've never thought of Deathstroke as being a guy that could do that. I just have never thought of that. He's never been, he's not, he's not been that much of an A-lister to me that I can put him on that pedestal. And he's more of an anti-hero. Deathstroke's allegiances have always been questionable. He's only ever looked out for number one. He's never been a team player. To expect him to lead a group of supervillains, I don't buy it. It's not been earned. I just don't. I, I don't. I just don't buy it. 
that's not even in his history. If you look at all the history of his comic books, that's if you look at all all the roles that he's played, uh, he's a guy that will betray anybody for family. He'll betray any hero or villain for family. He's too much of a wild card. I don't see the villains ever buying into loyalty to him, not for a second. But I get it. I'm going to accept it because I want to enjoy moving. I, I have to buy it because Williamson, unfortunately, has put too many eggs in this basket. So we have to accept it. But it's it's so a you hard have to accept it because that's what's happening, whether you like it or not. Well, no, that's, that's exactly happening. right. So I am because I don't want to like, you know, I get it. I get it. But if you're asking me if I buy into it, it doesn't really convince me. But I'm going to accept it and I'm going to stop being critical about it because Deathstroke's still cool. And if he intimidates all the villains, that's great. But I'd be lying if I said it made a lot of sense to me. But it is what it is. So I'm going to accept it and just move move forward and say, okay, and I'll drink to it. So here you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the reason I think it makes a lot of sense is because he, Deathstroke, Deathstroke, it could be argued, is the most brilliant tactician in the entire DC universe. That's not to say he's the most intelligent, because he's not. But if you're a supervillain and these, the infrastructure has already been built by the calculator – who is one of the most brilliant people in the DC universe, the most intelligent. So the infrastructure is already there. People further down the but, line. But not the not relationships, even... Chase. Not the relationships. But, it doesn't, but it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the relationships aren't there. The infrastructure, you've already, if you're a villain, you've already agreed to whatever the calculator's plans are. Just because calculator's no longer in charge, that, that doesn't change the infrastructure and, and the you know, all the building blocks that have already been put in place. And again, now that everything has been built, if you're talking about somebody who can lead, that has been earned by Deathstroke. He's shown time and time and time again that when it, when it comes to being in battle, he's the one of the greatest tacticians in the DCU. So if you're a supervillain and you've bought into everything that's been built by the calculator and you've agreed to join the secret society of supervillains, why wouldn't you want Deathstroke to lead you because at the end of the day, when it comes to battle, Deathstroke wins. Deathstroke is emerges as the winner. It's Deathstroke and Batman. Those are the two most brilliant tacticians in the DCU. So why not say, okay, this guy's going to lead us to, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you agreed that the reason you joined up in the first place, whatever calculator promised you. Why wouldn't Deathstroke be able to deliver it? So I agree with you in terms of, yeah, he's more of an anti-hero. And even the way he acted in the first five issues of the series didn't really give us any hint that he would all of a sudden heel turn and go villainous and decide to lead them. That's the part that doesn't make a, a lot of sense for me. But for all we know, and based on the conversation that he had with Black Canary, this could be a feint by him to dismantle this super secret society of supervillains from the inside out. We'll have to wait and see, but I wouldn't say it's not, I wouldn't say it's not earned. Cause again, he, he, I would say if he was trying to build the secret society from the ground up, like calculator did that, that would, that that's not him. That's not in his wheelhouse, but in terms of leading a group of villains into battle. Yeah. Why not? He's led, groups into battle and is a brilliant tactician. And that's always been well, the case with Deathstroke. Uh, one of the things I, I will give you is that it would make more sense that Deathstroke is, is probably better equipped to convince the villains to side with the heroes against the great darkness leading into the, leading into the dark crisis, because they're going to, the heroes are going to need all the help they can get once the justice league dies. And so if, if Deathstroke. Yeah, do Death they really need, 
do they really need to be? I mean, when it's like, hey, your entire universe and existence is going to end. Does anybody really need to convince you? I don't care if you're a villain or not. Well, well, well I'm you just saying, live. remember the temptation, though, that the great darkness, you know, the great darkness did manage to, to tempt, you know, manages to control a, a lot of the the major big hitters of the DC universe. So I, I, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just trying to. Yeah, think there's not a, I don't know enough. I, I, I'm not going to make any assumptions because I don't know anything about that story yet. <laughs> So I'm not going to, I'm not, I, you like to, spec, not, you, you love to speculate about that story stuff. And I, I hate to speculate about that stuff. I'm not going to make any guesses. I don't speculate about a story until I'm in it. So we'll have Fair to wait enough. and see. Uh, all right. On to the next book. It's task force Z issue number five from writer, Matthew Rosenberg, Eddie Barrows and Eber Ferreira with Matt Santarelli and Jack Aber are the artists, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters, uh, so sort of similar to uh, DC versus vampires, this issues a, a whole lot of battle between Task Force Z and another version of Task Force X. This one being led by KG Beast, who is you know under the thumb of Amanda Waller, who at least in terms of time of continuity, is basically admitting, "Yeah, I'm out of here. I'm a piece of shit. I don't care. I'm burning everything down." and and you know, just trying to clean up whatever I can to put myself in the best position possible for Earth Three. Again, I don't know how anyone can think that she's not an out-and-out villain and deserves to be killed and never be seen again. Uh, just God, Tell I can't us how stand you really her. Feel. God, I just I cannot stand her. She's she's ridiculous. But I love what Matthew Rosenberg is doing. Um, poor J- Jason Todd is in in a bad place. Um, Will Two Face? be the one that actually saves the day that remains to be seen like i mentioned when we were talking about uh robin lazarus resin is becoming hard to find has everything to do with talia and Roz getting control of uh the lazarus pits back so we task force z in terms of what what they can actually do i think will be ending soon and they won't be able to resurrect people but what will probably happen if i had to guess and again we're in this series so i will speculate they're probably going to use the last of the Lazarus Resin they have to bring all these villains back, right? Man Bat will be completely resurrected. Yes. Deadshot will be completely resurrected. Bane will be completely resurrected because the Bane we get in this issue, uh, right at the end, uh, final page, <laughs> Two-Face is ordering. He doesn't look so great. <laughs> he looks like he needs a few more doses of Lazarus Resin. So, And, and it's pretty sure that that Bane is probably a clone because that can't be the same Bane that's in the Joker. The real Bane must be in the, the Joker series that we're reviewing, right? You'd think? Or what, what do you think? Yeah, about I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the timing <laughs> is. I feel like that Joker series takes place, you know, quickly after the end of, um, of City of Bane. Right. I feel like that, that Joker series even t- takes place before Joker War. But that's just in my my head canon. But who knows? Uh, last thing I'll say about this is the art by uh, by Eddie Barrows and uh, and Jack Avert is uh, the pencil work is fantastic. There's Absolutely also Eber Ferreira and Matt Santorelli also contribute to the art. Yeah, they do. But those guys are inkers, so I'm thinking that they. One, uh, probably Eberfer and Matt Satorelli probably inked Eddie Barrows and uh, Jack Aber probably inked himself. That's my guess. Um, but regardless, all 
whatever any of those four did, they did it very, very well. The art is, is really awesome in this issue. So what are your thoughts? Uh, uh, this was an adrenaline rush of an issue. I, I love the character work here. I, I think that uh, Matthew Rosenberg really shows off his, you know, I'm, I'm so impressed with, with Matthew Rosenberg because I know that uh, it's funny because, you know, over the years, over the last five, I've, you know, I, I read and I listen to, I read Marvel titles too. And, you know, I know Matthew Rosenberg, you know, he had, he was hitting this over at Marvel from listen, listening to Marvel zombies and what have you. But Matthew Rosenberg, I gotta, I gotta give him some credit here. He's come over to DC and he's done his homework. <laughs> I really like his characterization. He seems to have a handle on DC characters. I gotta give him credit. And he seems to have a real good handle on Manda Waller, on, 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 on Jason Todd, on even KG Beast. And I mean, there, there's a, my favorite dialogue scene here is between, uh, you know, there's Jason Todd and, um, KG Beast, you know, KG Beast is basically, he's in front of Jason Todd, who's sort of strung up and dead shots beside him. And KG Beast, even he respects Jason Todd and he respects, he respects uh, Deadshot. And Deadshot, of course, is half dead. He looks like a zombie. And, and, uh, you know, and, and KG Beast is under orders to basically kill, kill them from, from Amanda Waller. And, uh, but, but to keep, to keep Deadshot alive. But Deadshot won't let KGB kill Jason Todd because he sacrifices his life. Because Deadshot, I mean, he just nails Deadshot. Deadshot, Deadshot's always been that member of the Suicide Squad who's always maintained a sense of honor and integrity and, and, and righteousness that, that even in the face of having a bomb in his head, when he did have a bomb in his head, and even now in the face of being kept alive through Lazarus Resin, who it's, re it's revealed here that Lazarus Resin, the effects are wearing off. The, the people, you know, people like Deadshot here, they're, they're becoming more and more immune to the effects of Lazarus Resin. So they require more and more of it just at a time when Lazarus Resin is becoming more and more difficult to obtain. And so this is a major crisis, especially if you're someone like Amanda Waller or Delia and, and Amelia who are, you know, sort of like working behind the scenes with the government trying to get more of this to try to create more of these teams. I mean, because if you have Lazarus resin, you can literally create an unstoppable team. Every time your soldiers get killed, you give them Lazarus resin, you resurrect them again. So you literally have a permanent team of soldiers to do your bidding and you can control them because you can keep them addicted to you. So they need you to... They need you in. They they need to work for you in order to get more Lazarus resin, so they can become alive again. But you can control their level of aliveness by controlling the level of Lazarus resin that you give them. And so there's sort of a sick horror element throughout this entire series that Matthew Rosenberg has managed to employ so well. And the the sympathy that you have for Deadshot here, and as he, as he sacrifices himself. Uh, to save Jason Todd, even though we know that he's he's technically he can be resurrected again through more Lazarus resin, and just as as Two Face shows up to save Jason Todd, and Two Face shows up with, of course, Bane the resurrected Bane, and uh, and Mister Freeze at the end, just so it's so well done here, and and you nailed it on the head when you said at the end here. We know that we know from the pages of Robin that Talia, who now runs the Shadows is is basically getting more is getting complete control and now has complete control of all the sources of the Lazarus resin all over the globe. So all of the Lazarus pits are now back under the control of the shadows under Talia Gaul. So that's likely gonna cut off 
Task Force Z to Lazarus resin, but we know that the last vestiges of it are likely going to be used, as you say, uh, Jace, that chances are, you know, all of these characters, Bane and, and Jason Todd and Mr. Freeze and Bloom, they're going to likely be resurrected permanently uh, and hopefully Arkham... Uh, 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 my one of my favorite characters, uh, Arkham Knight. I hope she gets resurrected too permanently to to bring them back. But this is just a this has been a really good series, and I just want to give a shout out here that you know sometimes I've been hard on DC continuity bit, but one of the one of the ongoing continuity storylines, the 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 sub subplots right from Future State throughout the entire year. From 2021 all through here, from March 2021 to present day, the idea of Lazarus resin being used to resurrect DC heroes has been a plot point in numerous issues of Suicide Squad, uh, and uh, it's been hinting at a Teen Titans Academy, Flash, and uh, Task Force Z here, and so and and in Batman. So it's nice to see that this has been actually a consistent continuity. Uh, in terms of the uh, the impact of L- Lazarus resin, and I think it's been well played and well done. And I want to give shout out to DC uh, DC editorial for at least maybe getting that right. So for those of us who are reading more than one issue, I think there's something to be had here. And kudos to Matthew Rosenberg here and uh, Eddie Burrows and Eber Ferreira on the art. It's, you know, this has been a, one of the series that has been more enjoyable to read. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Uh, okay, on to the last book uh, we're going to talk about. It's Human Target, number five, and uh, it's from writer Tom King. Art is by Greg Smallwood. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Um, I got to gotta say that I really absolutely loved the uh, the way the credits were on the menu in the book. Yeah. Uh, it, it was really – it was just really cool as – as um, Christopher Chance is having uh, some Mexican food with John Jones and and Ice, uh, this was a really fun issue. A little bit of a departure from what's been going on in the series up to this point, um, because of the whole aspect of of the mental powers of uh, of Martian Manhunter. So that worked for me um, on a lot of levels. The art continued to be fantastic. Uh, but this wasn't as much of a straightforward issue uh, as the previous ones were, but it still is absolutely fantastic art from Greg Smallwood, especially the color work, which he uses to great effect here to sort of denote when we're in different time periods and and sort of different events are happening. Because you have the, the you have sort of the storyline that's going on with, Ice and Christopher Chance and uh, John Jones or Martian Manhunter in his human form eating at the Mexican restaurant. But there's also flashbacks to um, Imra talking to Christopher Chance, Imra being a Saturn girl and her educating Christopher Chance on the way uh, telepathy works and mind control and people reading your mind and whatnot, which Christopher Chance uses at that moment when John Jones exposes his mind to Christopher Chance, unbeknownst to John Jones, Christopher Chance has kind of turned the tables and gets a big clue about who might be the one that was trying to poison Lex Luthor. And it makes a lot of sense who it is. It's Fire, who is Ice's best friend. And obviously, if uh, Fire thought that Lex Luthor was behind the death 
of ice, even though she's back, uh, fire would still want revenge. So that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, those different, um, the different colors, especially in terms of the background is what really helps differentiate these uh, different story threads uh, and help to uh, help you to understand and, and what's going on and how to read the book. Plus there's uh, kind of the big secret or the, the motivation or the event that basically sent Christopher Chance down the road of becoming the human target, um, which is him trying to, to be the human target for his father to prevent his father from being killed. His father was killed over some gambling debts, borrowed money when he, from somebody he shouldn't have. And as his fire father lays there dying, there's a very poignant moment where, you know, Christopher goes to him. He's probably 12, 13 years old and says, yeah, dad, I tried to be the target for you. I'm sorry. I wasn't able to save you. I promise I'll never fail again in, in protecting somebody. So it adds a lot of context for those that might not be that familiar with who Christopher chance is or why he does what he does. So this continues to be a brilliant series. Um, I can't say enough about how fantastic the art is and uh, yeah, I'm, everybody should be, should be picking up this title. Everybody should be reading it. Um, there's, there's literally no reason not to be reading human target. I mean, uh, even Tom King himself, the writer has said, you know, you, you don't even necessarily, again, this is Tom King, the writer of the book saying, you don't, you don't even need to read it. Like just pick it up just for the art. And, you know, he's basically saying you can disregard my work and just uh, pick it up for the art. So uh, anyway, Rocky's going to tell us what he thinks about it. But real quick, because uh, I'm going to have to run, uh, I will mention a couple of other uh, books that are coming out this week that we didn't talk about. We've got DC Horror Presents Soul Plumber number five, Refrigerator Full of Heads number four, uh, Batman the Imposter hardcover is out, Deceased. Hope at World's End trade paperback is also out, as is uh, DC Comics Generations trade paperback. So a lot of great books out from DC this week. Uh, I'll let Rocky take you guys home by kicking it off with his thoughts on Human Target. Yeah, uh, I, I think that uh, this issue of Tom King, absolutely, it, it, it shows just how much thought he puts into these types of stories. And the the manner in which he he conveys this is christopher chance you know we know that he's having a sexual relationship with ice he's attracted to ice he's a, and there's you know when i first read this issue going through it you know at first i was confused because you know he's sitting there he's making love to ice and then all of a sudden it looks like martian manhunter it's like ice is talking to martian martian manhunter and it's not until you read the issue as as that that it that it becomes clear that it's be, it's because this entire issue takes place in the seconds between it takes for Christopher Chance to pass the salt to Martian Manhunter. At the beginning of the issue, you know we got to remember that Ice is introducing Christopher Chance, the human target, to John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, and they meet over dinner. And the opening page is them reading the menu. And basically, Martian Manhunter asks for the salt from Christopher Chance. And, and then there's a flashback when Christopher Chance is, is actually recalling when he was being trained by one of Ra's men, one of Ra's Gaul's men, I take that to mean. 
And one of Raza Galsman uh, got him to this woman named Emra, who's from Titan, who is a telepath, presumably the same person, the, the same planet that, that the future Emra, who was Saturn girl in the 31st century is from. This can't, I, I can't imagine this is the same Saturn girl as from the future, although uh, Jay seems to suggest that it is. The Emra, Emra from the 31st century is spelt with an I, not an E, as in this issue, but that's that's an unimportant detail. The fact of the matter is, is that people from Titan are, are telepaths, and this Emra character is teaching Christopher Chance how to deal with a telepath. And Christopher Chance deals with Martian Manhunter in the very same way. He opens his mind to Martian Manhunter, knowing when he's passing Martian Manhunter the salt. At the beginning of the issue, he's passing Martian Manhunter the salt. He's opening his mind to Martian Manhunter and feeding Martian Manhunter his biggest thoughts, but keeping his biggest secrets hidden. Because he's he's been he's had that telepath he's had that training to control his mind from in the, from the past dealing with this Emra character when he in early in his career. And and as Martian Manhunter gets some thoughts from him, he gets some thoughts from Martian Manhunter. That's why throughout the issue, at different at one point in the issue, you see Christopher Chance sleeping with ice, and then you see an image with it's Martian Manhunter sleeping with ice. That's not because Martian Manhunter slept with ice. This is not suggesting that ice slept that both ice and fire slept with Martian Manhunter. No. It's because Martian Manhunter is occupying the mind of Christopher Chance and he's experiencing through Christopher Chance's mind what his past memories. So you you see Martian Manhunter with ice, but it's really Christopher Chance. Similarly, later on, you see Fire sleeping with Christopher Chance, but Fire actually slept with Martian Manhunter, but that was Christopher Chance, the, the human target, reading some of the mind of John John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. Because what's revealed here is that what happened is that after after there was an attempt made on Ice's life by Lex Luthor in order to get revenge, Fire slept with Martian Manhunter. Martian Manhunter got funding from Ted Cord, the Blue Beetle, and Ted and Martian Manhunter took that money and gave it to Fire. And of course he had a sexual relationship with Fire, it's revealed here, uh, during the days of the Justice League International. And so that's how they got close there. And Martian Manhunter was afraid of revealing that to Christopher Chance when their minds had that meeting of the minds, so to speak, over dinner while Christopher Chance was passing the salt. And at the end of this issue, the salt is passed. So this entire issue and all the narration takes place during the time where literally Christopher Chance is passing the salt. This is exactly the type of... This is exactly the type of storytelling that... I give Tom King so much credit for because, you know, a lot has been said. A lot of people say, oh, you know, Tom King, he gets the best artist like Greg Smallwood. Look, there's no question here. Greg Smallwood's art here is fantastic. He does a fantastic job. But make no mistake, the, 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 the manner in which this story is told is brilliant. This is brilliant. And this really hits home. And Tom King has done this even through his, even through his Batman run. And, and and I wasn't a fan of his Batman run, but I will give him full props for he was experimenting with different ways of telling the story in his Batman run that while as part of the larger narrative, it didn't work. I give him props for thinking outside the box in a way to tell a story and to tell his smaller narrative in a different way through 
and taking the most advantage of the artists that Tom King was gifted to collaborate with. And he does that to full effect here with Greg Smallwood and full props to Tom King for doing a great job. And Greg Smallwood, my friend, you have done a fantastic job. This is a really great series. This issue is brilliant. The, the attention to detail, the dialogue, the, the Tom King pushing the envelope, making the characters a little bit more naughty, a little bit more dangerous than you would expect them to be, with fire whispering in Martian Manhunter's ear, okay, tonight, but, uh, uh, but cut out the crying afterward. Remember, you're a goddamn Manhunter. I mean, she's, this is fire going to be sleeping with Martian Manhunter later on. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is really great. This is great storytelling. This is the type of stuff that I think this is, this is the type of storytelling that I, as an older reader, I like this sophisticated older storytelling for these characters because this to me is the type of storytelling that it's about time. We need more of this type of storytelling. And frankly, I'm so looking forward to Tom King. Give Tom King all the obscure DC characters because he makes them more interesting than the existing ones, quite frankly. He's doing a fantastic job. I really like it. And I strongly encourage people to pick up Human Target. You'll absolutely, yeah, uh, I, I'm sure, frankly, you'll enjoy it. You know, the only thing negative so far I've heard about his, uh, you've heard some comments about his portrayal of Guy Gardner in issue four. I think it's overblown, but even even if you don't think it is and you don't like his portrayal of Guy Gardner, it's a really minor nitpick, guys. The overall narrative here is excellent. The art is fantastic. It's well worth picking up. And I, again, this this Human Target series is just absolutely, it's it's really, really good. And wow, the art, Greg Small, the art is just fantastic. So guys, that's it here for this, uh, uh, for Human Target. I'm going to, uh, I guess, uh, it looks like uh, Jace is gone. I'm finishing up here. He's got an errand to run. But guys, uh, please hit the subscribe button. Uh, you know, hit the hit the subscribe button so you get notice every week of we we review DC Comics Weekly, every week. Uh, I'm going to leave the link below. Check out, if you want to listen to this as a podcast, uh, certainly, I mean, many of you, in fact, probably more of you listen to this as a podcast anyway. Uh, Jace is at, at the Comic Source Podcast. It's an excellent podcast. Jace reviews a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, lot of uh, creators, a lot of writers, a lot of artists. And you check out his website. There's this you know, subscribe to the Comic Source podcast. You'll get all of his content. It's it's incredible. The guy's a workaholic, and he and he does it all for you, uh, entertaining you guys with with great reviews. Uh, he does his Spawn Daily, uh, which I think is fantastic. I I stopped at issue twenty eight. I I I reviewed wish my I reviewed the Spawn Dailies up to him, up to issue twenty seven, twenty eight, and I had to stop. My schedule doesn't allow for me to continue with him for for too much. For, for as much as I would like, but hopefully I'll get back into it. But he's, he's at, he's reviewed up to spawn issue number 50 every single day. He reviews an issue of spawn. Check that out. Check out my channel again, comic boom exclamation point on YouTube. If you want to watch this, we go through, we actually show the pictures of the various pages on the comic. Uh, at least we go through them rather quickly, but you can watch this on YouTube as well. But guys, Feel free to check out Comic Boom exclamation mark on YouTube, the Comic Source podcast. And until next time, guys, uh, hey, 
Follow us. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm, Twitter. I'm at Metropolis Forty. Follow Jace on Twitter at the Comic Source. And until next time, well, I guess we'll we'll catch you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us. Subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.